Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship the reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. everybody welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio number 247 this is a little bit of a different episode that we're going to be doing tonight uh it's something that we haven't done before um but uh, mm-hmm. i think it will be a very uh 
a very interesting look into into a day in the life of a zookeeper. Um, uh oh, there goes that beep. It's already come over from the GTP Keeper it Radio Show. <laughs> the problem is, is that I was doing all this other stuff, so I didn't set it up right. You know. Christ. Um. God damn! freaking shit! Um, better now. Okay, good. Um, so, <clears throat> I, I mean, everybody, I think, has dreamed about uh, working with reptiles as your job, uh, not having to go to work, um, you know, uh, and all the stuff that comes along with it. And um, hopefully uh, we're going to discuss, uh, you know, is it really a dream job um, or is it <laughs> something that you do <laughs> because you just simply love, uh, you know, animals uh that you're working with um so um we're going to be talking with uh riley jimson um Mm -hmm. and he's going to be he works at the uh santa barbara zoo okay nice and there there you go um (laughs) so owen you have zoo background uh you've worked in a zoo before so uh you'll be able to uh relate I guess on some level, right? So on on a smaller level, I mean, obviously the Santa Barbara Zoo is a full blown AZA accredited facility, um, and I never got that far. But a lot of the stuff transfers over. I mean, right. kind of the same ideals. So yeah, I'll be able to relate a little bit. So and cool. I'm interested to see how that is, all that fun stuff, because you know we have talked to other people who work in zoo settings like Ari. And uh, things like that. So it's kind of interesting always to take a get another zookeeper's take on uh, making it your job to take care of a collection for a zoological place. So now our friend Chris Salemi, he he works at the Bronx Zoo, but yes. he doesn't take care of reptiles. He's in charge of no, the big does, cats. <laughs> he, he does kitties. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I don't know. I mean, to me, that would probably be like a job, even though I love tigers and all. Uh, <laughs> that would. Dude, <laughs> tigers are annoying. I mean, it's like they're they're. Well, I only ever had cubs, but they're so damn loud, and when they want attention, there's no stopping them from getting it. And it, oh yeah, so. Um, but working with the big guys has got to be really cool. So. Yeah. Um. But uh, in other news, uh, before we get yeah. uh, Riley on, uh, you were uh, out and about this past Sunday night, hanging out with uh, the GTP Keeper Radio boys. Uh, what was that I like? Was. It, it was. It was really weird, to be honest with you, because <laughs> it's like, I'm getting ready to go, and I'm like, all right, here comes the intro music. Time to get pumped, and it's like rainforest noise. Like, the hell is that? It's like this isn't <laughs> like <laughs> this isn't this isn't my. It's like you know, it's like you ever watch like a boxer or something coming for the ring. Did yes. you ever imagine like him coming out to the wrong music, where he's gonna be like all kinds of confused? Of like this, what is this? That's yeah. pretty much what it felt like. It's just like all right, this is like normal. This is like everything. And then I hear rainforest music. I'm like, no, it's not. This is not your show. None of this <laughs> is how it should be. So. <laughs> Um, it was kind of, it took a little bit of getting used to because they're like, 
asking me the questions, and I'm like, all right, um, do I answer them now? So, it, but it was fun. It was great hanging out with Buddy and Bill and Alexis, and oh my God, why am I blanking on the last guy? Matt. Okay. Matt, so, Matt. So all of them, yep, all of them. It was really cool talking with all of them, and it was really cool reminiscing about Carpet Fest, and also, you know, Bill's going in, and he's like, you're Owen McIntyre. I am. You own Rogue Reptiles. You're good so far. Keep going. And it's like, you're also in the, like, I'm like, yeah, good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That is the bio. And it's like, it's really weird to be on the other end of that because, like, you never ask or give me kind of an introduction other than here's Owen. So it's like, right. it's weird to have all those things lined up at once because it's like, crap. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think. So. I, I I was listening to that. Um, it was funny. I was listening to that on uh, on speaker, and my wife was there, and she was cracking up because <laughs> you said, "He's like, uh, yeah, you uh, host the uh, Morelia Python Radio. I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> you you own and operate Rogue Reptiles. I do. You're good so And good so you yeah. are going to be hosting Harpet Fest this coming weekend." Clearly, you have done your research. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is that when I'm nervous, all I do is crack jokes. So it's just like, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Well, I mean, what am I going to say? You you run Rogue Reptiles. No, that that was disbanded years ago. No, I don't. It's like, like, what? Of course. And it's all that. But um, one quick thing. We're kind of sidetracked here for a little bit. Because right. I've been threatened numerous times, if I don't bring this up on the show, there will be dire consequences. Okay. My father would like to apologize to you and the fans who may have heard him celebrating at a very loud volume during the show last week. <laughs> okay, apology accepted. There we go. See, he, th- he said he would be listening, and if I didn't say this, he might find the number again. So I'm going to do this so that he leaves you alone <laughs> and he goes off and does whatever it is he does. He refused to actually stay at my house this week because I've been prepping for Carpet Fest all week, so he's been gone. So Oh, okay. Oh yeah, no help whatsoever. But anyway. <laughs> but he's just gonna show up when the beer gets there, right? <laughs> you're, yeah. Yeah. So Doing GTP Keeper Radio, it, it, again, it was fun. Uh, it was cool being on the other side of it. And it's you, you never realize just kind of how daunting it could be to be a guest. Because it's like we're getting ready to go on the show. And uh, a few, like Alexis and a few of the other, and, and Matt were kind of talking about how, you know, they've done it. And she's never been on a show before, so she's a little nervous. And I'm like, Wow what's it like to be nervous before you go on a radio show? I mean, I just don't remember anymore. It was just like, <laughs> it's just, uh, I, I, it's just a phone conversation with you. and just happens to be that everybody else in the world is listening in on it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was a good show. It was, a, it, was uh, it was, it was, it was entertaining. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was wondering, I said, I'm waiting for um, you guys to talk Condros. And you're like, you get it out of the way right quick. You're like, I have one. <laughs> I have one. I have one. She's over there. Any yeah. other questions? It's like, yeah, it's, you know, I, 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 my Condra card is not a powerful one. So, 
Yeah, but, but that doesn't it, matter. She's there. Yeah, yeah I, she's there. I'll I'll get more eventually. You know, right now, other things are on my mind, like more roughies. And also, I have this Timor Python that needs a mate. So, oh, yeah. she's here, by the way. Oh, she's there. Oh, interesting. She's here, because she was too big. A lot of people mind. get shit on at Carpet Fest. <laughs> she has been, I don't know what KJ was doing with her. Right. But she has been, she's not bitten. She is not pissed on me. Not taking a shit. She's been calm. Every time I hold her, she moves slow and deliberate. Huh. It's, like, not what I expected at all. I'm, like, holding her, waiting for, like, the other shoe to drop, and nothing happens. So, huh. I don't know. I think my Timor Python's broken. So, um, <laughs> I'm not going to complain, but, yeah. He says that must Apparently, not be the same snake. <laughs> maybe... Maybe I am just, you know, that it's like much. you out, dude. It's psyching you out. Yeah. It's going to get like your. Waiting. Yeah. It's learning. It's going to get your. Uh, Velociraptoring me. Just learning how I do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just figuring it out. Yeah, you were. Yeah, of course it pissed all over you at the vet office. You were trying to probe it. Duh. Yeah. So, <laughs> that'll happen. But, but. Oh, yeah, she's been fine, so. You can play with that one. I'll let you clean the white lips in her. Oh, wow. I'm so excited. On Friday. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm I so do that happy. because we're friends. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy that for sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so this Saturday is uh, Carpet Fest, uh, the North mm-hmm. Carpet Fest. Um, Owen is in a state of panic, but everything will come Little together. A <laughs> little bit of panic. I told him a bit of panic. The uh ingredient that's missing from the Carpet Fest equation is a wife to help him with the uh, <laughs> What the so, like when the hell did you become my mother? It's like will you just chill for a minute? <laughs> so uh you could bar you I should have let you borrow mine for the week. You know, maybe yeah. she should have helped you out. But uh uh <clears throat> let's see, what else? So yeah, Carpet Fest is uh is this this Saturday. Saturday. Um, yep. It looks like where it's going to rain, which kind of sucks. But yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe it won't be the case. But um, Or maybe it moves quick enough that it's like one of those things where it just kind of happens and then gets out of the way. Um, yeah. Even if it does, you know, obviously we're still going to have Carp Fest. So just, you know, I, yeah. have, uh, I have a roof over both my deck and my patio, and I have the bar and the dining room and there's plenty of space if we have to end up staying hanging out inside. So that's totally fine. Um, so yeah, we'll, we will, we'll, we'll rain or shine. We're going to get this done. This will be the second time it's rained on carpet. Fest, so, yeah, I remember that other one that was, uh, <laughs> that kind of sucked, but you know, it looks like, uh, we're going to have, uh, you know, a pretty decent turnout. Uh, we got yeah. Nick Mutton coming all the way from the West Coast uh, to come and hang out with us here on the East Coast. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny. I was talking to him today, and uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I know because I was talking to him before you. He's yeah, like, Eric's calling me. I gotta go. I'm like, oh, you know where <laughs> I sit in the Morelia Python Radio pecking order. Uh, no. So yeah, he uh, I, I he tells me he's like, well, Owen's a lot easier to get in touch with. So I called him first. <laughs> he actually answers the phone. 
I'm like, he answers his phone, yeah. Yeah. Nick, he sits at a desk. What do you expect? Actually, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> today, oh, easy killer. Um, actually, today, I didn't pick up the phone when he called because my dad's like, why is your phone vibrating across your desk? I'm like, it's Nick. I'm like, I, I got a bunch of stuff I got to do, and I got to call back some clients. If I get on the phone with him now, I'm done for at least an hour and a half. So he's going to have to wait till I get out of work. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so at the very end of the conversation, we are talking about um, uh, IJs. And, you know, I was telling him about, um, you know, just my – I guess he never realized or maybe he wasn't paying attention to the group of IJs that I have. So, you know, I was telling him about some of the stuff. So we're probably going to be yeah. doing some type of breeding loan um, nice. where he, he has a, like a wild caught hypo type looking IJ uh, and I have my PC IJ. So we're going to probably going to do some kind of joint pairing and see what happens. But uh, nice. what was funny is I said, you know, um, I said, you know, I'm the morph guy and all, and, you know, I like all this morph stuff and everything, but I, I got to tell you, man, you know, it's hard to beat, like, a, you know, an inland carpet or an IJ or, you know, coastal, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know what this reminds me of? He's like, I'm like Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi, where I'm like, there's still hope for you. I can see the good in you, and I'm Darth Vader. <laughs> I can turn you to the good side. Oh, it's cracking up. I do, I, I, I do love that it's an absolute nerddom mixed yeah. with reptiles, so it's fantastic. You know, yeah. I, I, my, my nephew's down at, Uni, uh, at Disney right now doing all the Star Wars crap, so I've been getting nothing but pictures of him with, like, lightsabers and on the speeder bikes and i'm like yes so that's yeah, awesome it's, it's really cool anyway so yeah so uh uh let's see one more thing i guess before we get going uh i just wanted to send a uh a congratulations out to uh tim tyndall um mm-hmm. he's over there over over across the pond as they would say and um he hatched out uh day 60 uh his uh uh, clutch of inland carpets and the reason nice. that i bring that up is that uh i know he's been trying for for as many years as i've been trying to breed my exanic um <laughs> and, oh uh, that long huh yeah so uh it's it's awesome that he he persevered and he figured it out mm-hmm. and he got a clutch and they're hatching out so uh congrats to him uh on that so Let's see. Yeah. Anything else uh, you got going on, or I separated all the super caramel jag babies. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Speaking Uh, of bait, speaking of babies, real quick, the uh, tiger head albinos started to shed. And they're pretty, aren't they? Yeah. You know how it's kind of like. I was yeah, kind of like, like on the uh, fence, like, eh. yeah. Oh, dude, it's they're going to kill. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I, have come, I have to come back over to your house then. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Anyway, you said you separated the caramels. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. Well, the, the red tiger jet clutch had its first feeding, and four for four, everybody took. So uh, that's exciting. And then I separated the super caramel clutch. I have a crap ton of what appear to be super caramel jags. Like, I don't know if I hit the odds the right way, but there are a lot of girls that look super caramel jag-like, so I have my eyes on all of them. 
to see how they develop, but it's like everybody really looks good, so I'm excited about that clutch in that group. Um, I'm going to wait till they kind of shed uh, before I post pictures of some of the girls and stuff like that, and the boys are definitely no slouch either, so it's uh, it was a good clutch. I'm kind of happy with that clutch, and I still might have a female drop the day of Carpet Fest, so I don't know. That's her drop-dead date, and she looks gravid, so we'll see. Question for you when it comes to picking out the supers. You know, what yeah. what is it what is it that you're looking at that would say that they're supers? Well, when they're all clumped together, you can kind of tell, like, because remember how baby caramels are born red? Right. Baby supers are almost born goldish. Like, they look caramel already. So, um, and also they have a light, a light patch um, right where their head meets their neck that's kind of like a little bit brighter. So that's what you look for. And, again, everybody that I have labeled as a super caramel might have their first shed, and it might not look as super caramel um, as I originally thought. So I always am on the fence, and I do always err on the side of caution where it's like, I would rather call it a caramel jag, somebody buy it, and then it turns out to be a super caramel jag than sell someone a super caramel jag that wasn't. So if I say it's a super, it's because it's way better looking than the majority of its siblings, and it resembles what I've seen to be a proven super caramel. Okay. Anything with the eyes? Anything you notice with the eyes? No? I haven't paid that much close attention to the eyes, but I haven't heard anything about the eyes. Nick does talk about the light patches around the necks, um, but that's with normal super caramel. You kind of lose it a little bit with the jag. You still get the light patch, but it's kind of hard to tell what's jag pattern and what's not. When uh, Saturday, I'll show you what I think is a normal caramel jag and then uh-huh. the super caramel jag. So, gotcha. All right, cool. Very, very cool. Um, anything else uh, you want to hit on before we Order. get going here? You and I got to set up the auction as soon as possible. So I guess we're going to set that up and go live with that tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Um, we were supposed to go today, but um, work got in the way for me. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been working basically twelve-hour uh, days. <clears throat> right. Getting getting up at uh, three o'clock in the morning uh, to get Damn. to work, <laughs> and work until like uh, you know three in the afternoon. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it's been uh, yeah. it's been a rough couple days for me, but we'll I get didn't... it up and going. I got a yeah, few people. So you... oh, go ahead. I mean, so if you have if you're out there and you're listening and you have a voucher or a donation for the auction, contact myself or Eric. Uh, either tonight, Tuesday, or sometime in the early afternoon um, uh, tomorrow, which is Wednesday, and we'll put it on and we'll get it going. And then we'll try to go live with the auction by 8 o'clock tomorrow night on the Morelia Python radio Facebook pages and things like that. So, Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah, we have, a, we have a couple cool things for sure, but um... – not as much as we usually get, but that's that's okay. There's there's a couple cool things. I think it will bring uh, 
bring some yeah, uh, I mean, attention. Your voucher, your voucher, my voucher. I know Buddy said for a voucher. Um, Chris is putting a voucher in. I'd contact him. Chris Salemi is donating some stuff. Uh, yeah, we can probably convince Nick. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'll yeah, just. It, uh, it, we'll start bugging people. All right, cool. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, I guess without further, further ado, let's get this going and, uh, get some time. Hey Riley, welcome to the show. I should say welcome back. You were with us, uh, during the, uh, Carpet Python round table number, what, six or something like that. Um, so welcome back. I oh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You guys can hear me, right? I'm trying some new headphones yeah. on this one. Yeah, yeah. we can hear cool. you. I don't know. Awesome. I, I never trust technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we never should. <laughs> never. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, well, it seems that whenever we have like the guests that we've been waiting for forever, regardless of uh where they are calling from, uh it's always technical difficulties <laughs> for the like, you know, the one yeah. that everyone's super pumped about and you know, that's always something Every, goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So well, hopefully I'll do my best to make sure none tonight. of that comes from my end. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> so I thought that with this episode in particular that we would, like I told you, we would kind of keep the conversation open. Um, I don't um, really know, uh, you know, what's the right questions to ask, but I thought that as we were go through, um, they would just come and we would have a conversation. Uh-oh. Sounds like a Oh, a train coming in somewhere. How do you do it? Uh, that's on mine. That thing's so obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I always slave Owen. <laughs> it's not my fault this time. It's just habit. Uh, I'm sorry. No, that's cool. Uh, no, um, it's, it's awful. Caltrans just runs right by my house, and we'll be watching a wow. TV show or something, and... Uh, it, it's down the hill. It's far enough away where you wouldn't think it'd be an issue, but I guess it is. I'll be watching a game or a show or something, and a really crucial line comes on. And burr, burr, oh, man. Damn you, Captain. Great, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Nope. Wow. So, <clears throat> um, I thought we'd start at the beginning. So, I guess the beginning would be, you know, um, you know, what got you started wanting to go into the zoo field? Uh, where, you know... What piqued your interest with that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, it really started when I was a kid, and I bugged my parents enough to finally uh, let me get a king snake when I was eight or nine years old. And then I kind of grew out of that and was skateboarding a lot and uh, realized I can't have partially broken limbs and work a full-time job and support myself. So that tapered off, and I started looking at, you know, what else do I like doing? And I looked at my living room. I had a, a water dragon. Uh, I had a couple cats. I was like, you know, I really like animals. I wonder if there's something I can do with that. But I've always been a little bit apprehensive putting myself out there. And so I was like, no, I, you know, I don't know how to go about doing that. And the whole time my mom's in the background just pushing me, like, go to the zoo. Go to the zoo. Just talk to them. Just put your foot in the door. Just go see what volunteer opportunities it had. And after kind of pushing it off for a while, she fought, I, I really I ran out of arguments on why I shouldn't. And, uh she finally convinced me to go. I went and talked to somebody, and, and I got 
I got uh, enrolled in some of the the classes that they require starting volunteers to take, really basic stuff like natural history, interpretation, what zoos are all about. And in the first couple months of some of these little one-hour, two-hour uh, evening classes, I realized this is a lot more than I thought it was. I had no idea. This is really interesting. And I started taking more. And depending on the avenue volunteers wanted to go, there are a certain number of classes, and I just signed up for everything. It's like, I want to do it all. And I kind of went hog wild with it and um, got uh, got the basics done in order to start uh, trying my, my hand at the um, the animal care aid or the keeper aid line. And they start you out doing rotations where you, you do a couple um, a couple shifts on bird line, mammal line, and then herb line. And I got through all of it, and I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't get an ideal day for the herp line. So my one day a week, I started on birds, and um, I found uh, a window to, to add a second day of volunteering on. And pretty quickly, I was doing uh, a full day helping out the bird team on my weekend, and then a half day before going to my, my paid job uh, helping out the herp team. And I got to tell you, my, my world was turned upside down pretty quickly. Um, I knew I liked snakes. I knew a little bit about them, a little bit about lizards. And in the first few months, I was, like, Googling everything left and right and uh, just grabbing books and, you know, talking to people and asking questions. And uh, I became really, really obsessed uh, pretty quickly and went out and got a rainbow boa, uh, just dove full on and then got a, a blacktail creebo, not really knowing exactly what they were about, and that was the best thing I ever made. <laughs> And that guy's a blast. Um, and anytime I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm doing, I look at him like that. That's what I'm doing. And uh, he keeps me really intrigued. And I volunteered for about a year and a half, uh, just doing everything I could uh, to put myself out there. And I was kind of working a boring, you know, part-time job that was like I was working at a UPS store, and I, I hate dealing with rich people and delivering their mail. So I was like, I got to, <laughs> I got to do something else. And an opportunity opened up. I applied uh, about six months in, and I didn't get it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And, uh, and then because I had all my info on file, one day about a year later, a uh, position on the HERP team opened up. And, it, you know, looking back on it, obviously it makes more sense. It's easier for them to hire from within. Um, you know, they can start somebody off fresh and really mold them to how the system works and, they called me one day and basically said, hey, uh, we knew you applied a while back. Do you want this job? And the one I had initially applied to was a mammal job, but I was just going to get my foot in the door and take whatever I got. And this one was like, it was like holy grail. It was the herb job. And they were offering it to me without me asking. I was like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll see you tomorrow. So uh, that was kind of how I, I got started in the zoo field. And I, I really – I would be uh, – I'd be remiss if I didn't thank my mom for just really kicking me in the butt and, and pushing me to do something that was a little bit uncomfortable at the time. Yeah, that's that's always the good thing. Yeah, so, um, and, and the rest is history, I guess they say. Well, actually, I wanted to talk. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about the zoo you're working for? It's the Santa Barbara Zoo, right? Correct. Yeah. So Santa Barbara Zoo, uh, AZA accredited institution. We're 
I guess you could say we're kind of on the smaller end. We're 30 acres. A lot of it uh, we can't necessarily develop, so it's not like all 30 acres are exhibits. Um, we've got a lot of nice picnic areas and fountains and uh, a stage and this and that, and we are limited on all sides by a bird refuge, the freeway, and the mountains, so we, we're forced to be really creative with uh, the space we have, but we're ADA accredited, so we hold ourselves to very high standards, and we're uh, subject to a lot of uh, inspection and protocols and this and that, and, uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, where are your tigers? We'd love tigers, and yeah, we'd love tigers, but we do not have the space for tigers, so we, <laughs> we do what we can. We keep the species right. that we can, but we also really focus on uh, as much of the the local aspect of things as possible because uh, one of the things they teach you is if you really want to gain support in something you're doing, if you can get local people behind it and make a connection with them, that's really going to empower that initiative. And so we've got an excellent uh, California condor exhibit and we're heavily involved in that program. And that's fantastic. I mean, we that's probably one of our, our bigger draws aside from uh, – our uh, quote-unquote giraffe factory. We seem to have no problem breeding giraffes, which is awesome. Um, and then uh, we do some work with Channel Island foxes. We've got the, the islands right here, so it seems to make sense. And we've been able to uh, take in some, some uh, orphan animals, uh, send animals to other facilities, really help out with uh, their recovery program. And they've since rebounded uh, very well um, partially due to some of the work we do, but there's a lot of other people who, who play major roles in that as well. So, um, And this year, uh, one of my team members has really taken our amphibian uh, field work program and just run with it, and now we do a lot of uh, red-legged frog work, um, kind oh, of nice. our mountains right behind here and as far down as Santa Monica Mountains. So we do really well with the local stuff, and then we also try to incorporate some of the bigger draws, elephants, snow leopards, giraffe, lions, things like that, and really just have as much variety as possible. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, we, we, I like to think we do a little bit of everything, and what we do, uh, we do pretty well. So, especially for uh, what some people would consider a smaller zoo. I mean, you go to San Diego, and you can't see the entire place in two days, and uh, <laughs> you can see the entire Santa Barbara Zoo in two hours. But, um, you know, people quite often – uh, are leaving the zoo and they're walking out going, yeah, this place is beautiful. You guys do really well. This is like a, a botanical garden almost. And, it, you know, it, it reinforces everything we're doing. So we like to think we we do pretty well with the the smaller size that we have and, and our limitations, and we work really well within that. So smaller zoo, big art. Very cool. Awesome. So why don't can you tell us a little bit, give us a kind of an overview of, the reptile collection, reptile and amphibian collection. What do you have? What is kind of like your favorite? Yeah, um, we actually have a, a pretty darn diverse collection. Um, uh, a small group of tarantulas. Uh, we have zero issue breeding poison dart frogs, apparently, because we are going through and redoing an exhibit right now, and we've got like 50 uh, erratus, like, how do, how, we didn't even mean to do that. How did that happen? Um, we've got uh, we've got some cool amphibians right now, some smoky jungle frogs. We, uh, we've got a bunch of Amazon milky frogs that we actually just uh, 
hatched out 114 babies, which is what the a hell? lot of work. <laughs> a lot of babies. Yeah, it's like, well, I'll admit that uh, the local zoo for us is Philadelphia Zoo. And it, somehow, I guess they do really, really well with the glass frogs. Because what started ah. off as like four in one cage has now like amassed to like 50 in every single tank <laughs> along the wall, mixed yeah. in with a bunch of other animals. So, like, I, I does that happen where every once in a while those ones just you can't get them to stop breeding? Yeah. Um, it's ironic because I, I guarantee you there's a lot of people who are going to hear this and go, I want one, but uh, monkey tail skinks. We. It's it's a ridiculous story. Um, we have what we call our, our family group. And when I first started, right. it was uh, one male, one female, and another female that they produced in 2008. So it's three individuals on exhibit, plus uh, our other guy, Petey, who's our education animal. And so it was a really small group. And every once in a while, I was like, oh, uh, we got a baby. Uh, really? How did that happen? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, one plus one equals two. It makes sense. And uh, and so we had a baby a few years ago, surplus it, and it's now living at another zoo I couldn't recall. And then um, I think what what I was initially told is that we don't need to breed any of those. They're pretty well represented in zoos. There's not really a huge need. And so we're like, okay, we won't do that. But we didn't really do anything to stop it. And then next thing you know, um, baby. <laughs> Another another baby. I come in one day. I'm like, what is that goo on the? Lo- oh my gosh, there's something in it. Oh, there's a baby. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was exciting, but it was like, oh boy, I hope this doesn't cause any issues. And then uh, our male, because he was just so good at making more of him, uh, was, just didn't stop, and he ended up getting some abrasions that required some. Uh, surgery on his hemipenes, and we ended up having to amputate one of them. We're like, oh, well, that should probably solve that issue. It was wrong. Um, they have two for a reason. And, <laughs> what the hell? Uh, he's determined, man. He is. Wow. He does not take no for an answer. <laughs> and then uh, last year, Damn. again, I, I walk in, and this is probably August. And I see two little choppy, bitey, squirmy, wet things crawling around. I'm like, oh, no, we did it again. We, <laughs> we have two more. We have twins. And, of course, both of them are doing fine. Um, they're doing oh, fantastic. God. And so we're like, okay, we need to separate him. So we put him in another enclosure. We're like, problem solved. Great. Fantastic. You're wrong. Um, in November, again, I walk in. I'm like, hey, this baby, like, got smaller, and it's, now blue and there's two babies over there. This uh, not crap. So oh, she was pregnant before he left or something. Yeah. So whoops. Um, we're good at that without even trying. But uh, I think that that should be it. And those babies are going to find new homes. We're going to keep uh, one of them because she's very docile and gentle. And why not make a uh, make her an education animal. We, we like doing that. So um, there's a perfect example of breeding when we aren't even trying and they just seem to keep going. Um, it's like he's shooting, shooting, uh, shooting his, his, his little offspring from across the building somehow, or <laughs> I don't know how he's doing it, but uh, he's magic. He's a magic man. Jeez. Um, 
so that yeah, I, I would say that's probably the best example of that on our end in terms of uh, breeding without even trying. Okay. Um, and, and as far as getting back to yeah other animals, I mean we've got um, like I said a variety of frogs and amphibians. Um, we have a small venomous collection, but I I I appreciate our venomous collection a lot. Um, mm-hmm. We have a couple Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. Uh, we have a false water cobra who, before I was working there, was breeding like crazy, apparently. Um, and he's a blast, especially when he comes flying out the door at you when you're just opening it. Um, we have That a, sounds like fun. You know, yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, he's just a ball of energy and love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, our eastern diamondback is... Uh, She's a big girl. So I think her last weight was a little over six kilos. So she's uh, Oof. she doesn't like anything to do with people. So she's fun to work with too. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's something something intense for sure. I, every once in a while, we'll we'll pull her out into a big open space just for practice handling. And yeah, that's that's one way to get the blood flowing. But uh, mm-hmm. that, she's. She's beautiful, and I have a very, very intense appreciation and level of respect for that animal. Um, uh, we've got uh, a couple beaded lizards that are just, if you know oh. anything about beaded lizards, big, clumpy, oh. you know. I love lizards, those things. Lizards, but they're awesome. They're tons yeah. of fun. Um, and then I think our last uh, our last venomous on that list is uh, we have a Taylor's Cantio who is just striking and beautiful, and I love that animal. But she, uh, when we, we go to do anything with her, put her on hooks, she likes to hit the reverse button and go backwards and flop off the hooks. Oh, Christ. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's fine. <laughs> um, so that's our venomous collection. Um, we've got a few other odds and ends in terms of snakes. Uh, we have a, a really, really friendly 21-year-old uh, Burmese python male who uh athlete named Chief, he's our big guy. Um, the red tail, a couple other things. Uh, we've got a Woma who we got him as a baby from Zoo Atlanta, and he was your typical bitey Woma. And he's actually now one of my star education animals because I just spent a couple of years handling him and just really creating positive associations and not reinforcing that biting behavior. And now he's just a mellow, you know, pretty lax animal, and I can have – kids petting him for 20 minutes at a time without him flinching. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Um, so it can be done for anybody who works with Wilma's and is trying to mellow one out. It's, it's not too tough. Keep going. God, I love uh, those snakes, man. <laughs> yeah. They're it's, fun. Wilma's are, are pretty. I love them. Yeah, I have a, a very fond appreciation for them. I might have to add them into my collection at home one day, but that's, you know, down the line and probably not necessary, which means I'll get yelled at if I do that by <laughs> my girlfriend. But, you know, uh, never stop me. Yeah, before. yeah. Um, you get yeah. yelled at for a day and then it, you know it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll I'll spout some some like, but it fits with this and this and it's fun and look what I can do and then it's like okay. It's so pretty. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Uh, as far as crocodilians go, we've got a, an American alligator, Mary Lou. She is 54 years old and has all the spunk of a two-year-old, and she's very, very smart. 
Um, she's been target trained for a decade, so I can get her doing A to Bs back and forth uh, across the pool. I've recently been training her to just shift off exhibit into a holding space just by following my voice and a bunch of banging on a door. Um, and nice. reinforcing that with food. And she's she's blind in one eye, and so that presents some challenges when presenting cues or things like that, and she has zero issue whatsoever. She's she's a great example of reptilian brilliance, and I can't tell you how many times people are blown away when I give them any sort of info on that, and that's fun. Um, <laughs> we, See, all my alligators were stupid. So <laughs> one of those, you know, mine were all mine were dumbass boys, and that's why I got chewed on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're but, kind of big clunkers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they're but, figure, uh, they're they're not as dumb as people think. So no, absolutely that's how not. you end people up getting a problem there. Yeah, people are shocked when they learn that uh, they can remember things, they can recognize and differentiate between people's voices, that you can mm-hmm. train certain behaviors and things like that. So uh, they are impressive animals in their own right, one way or the other. Um, we uh, we have a dwarf caiman female who's bigger than most that I've seen, and uh, she's got that, that Napoleonic complex that uh, most dwarf humans have, and she is. She has the best name, as far as I'm concerned, in our collection. We, her name is Muffin, and uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I did always enjoy giving, like, the most badass animal, like, the dumbest name. Like, I think I named a Nile Crocodile Chuckles once, just because I thought it'd be hilarious. When it's like, yep. what happened? Oh, Chuckles ate somebody. So, you know, uh, that was... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nice. People love it, and uh, as soon as they hear that, you've got their attention. That's for sure. So, uh-huh. and then and then my favorite of crocodilians, we have a female Chinese alligator who's uh, oh. going to be she's going to be 22 years old this year, and that girl. Wow. I I love that animal a lot more than some other animals in our collection. Not because the other ones are any less impressive or important, but she is just. She's something special. She likes to follow me around the pool, but not in an aggressive way. She likes to just see what I'm up to. Um, she is very tolerant. She's great when feeding. She is not aggressive at all. I can walk right in, and she just all she wants is what's at the end of the, the tongs. And uh, uh, she's oh, she's awesome. I love watching and they're her. They're so pretty. Bellowing. Yeah, um, she's gorgeous. They're, I mean, they're gorgeous animals. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working. I'm working on uh, potentially arranging a, a male to come to the zoo in the next year or two, if uh, all goes well with the the SSP, and if we get a recommendation or or go overseas, who knows? But uh, man, Chinese alligator babies, that thought has me has me tickled. Um, they're gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful crocs. So uh, yeah, not to, they need they need all the help that they can get. Uh, yeah, their their wild counterparts are taking a beating. So I mean, they are right. even if it, even if even if there wasn't my own selfish interest uh, of wanting to see baby Chinese alligators, I've got you know institutional support with that. So that's fantastic. So I got a I got a question that's kind of on that topic. So if you guys are you know doing something, uh, do you do anything as far as reintroduction into the wild? Um, 
Anything along uh, that line? We currently don't have any animals that we are breeding that are also poised to be reintroduced in the wild. That being said, um, there's no reason why we wouldn't do that if there was an animal on our list or in our collection that would benefit from that. So say down the line, we, we end up getting approved to bring in some red-legged frogs, do some captive propagation. Um, wild repatriation would certainly be on the list of tasks in that program. Um, now, I have no idea if that's, if that's in the works yet or not. Uh, I would imagine it could be. There's no reason why it can't. And uh, right. that's, def- that's definitely part of, uh, in terms of AZA program animals, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's definitely one of the the categories when looking into, okay, do we want to work with this species? Yes or no. What sort of efforts do they need? Can we pull this off um, with our institution? Can, can we make this happen? And oftentimes the answer is yes, let's get our first, you know, step done and we'll work towards it. Um, right. If there, if there is suitable habitat, uh, in their native environment, and there's government support and protection if need be, and, and everything looks like, you know, it's a good time to put them back, then absolutely. Um, that's definitely on the list of things to do with, with program animals and in all AZA institutions, whether it be mammal, bird, reptile. So, yeah. I guess that would be the biggest, uh, the biggest problem is not necessarily uh, is the, uh, the habitat for the animal. That's being destroyed. I mean, yeah, you got a place to put it back. I mean, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, across the board, for most species, the biggest detriment to helping endangered species is is lot, lack of habitat or lack of government support in protecting that habitat. Uh, in the case of Chinese alligators, a lot of their habitat has been destroyed for. Yeah. Uh, a farming for for personal use for people and um, it's very fragmented as well. There is, I believe, uh, a recently reintroduced population in another province that is not their natural area, but it's it's somewhat close. And uh, last I heard, there are actually some individuals out there that are doing well and potentially even reproducing in this new uh, new territory. So. Um, that it's always encouraging to hear things like that, but yeah, that's usually the biggest issue is those animals yeah. are in need of some sort of help because there isn't habitat, especially when you're talking about like frogs in South America and Brazil and the Amazon and Peru and how a lot of that is just deteriorating or, or India, a lot of their, their habitat for say, uh, gharials. I mean, that's all just being wiped out for, for mines and things. So you can breed as many animals as, 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 possible in a zoo setting, but if there's nowhere to put them, then what do you do? Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm also curious, like, um, how does, how does an exhibit come about? Like, how do you go from adding an animal or, or adding a species or, you know, uh, who comes up with the, you know, putting together the exhibit? Is it, how does that all come to play? It's a, it's a very elaborate and well-thought-out process, and I'm actually still learning a lot more of it as I go along because I see all these emails like, who wants to make it, though? I'm like, ooh, me, 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 guys. Can't <laughs> do, ooh. Yeah, oh, yeah. Whoa, hold on. Then you, hold need, on. Oh, you need to get approval, and there needs to be a space. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's not yeah. 
it's not all that easy. <laughs> so. No, no, it's not like, okay, there's one for sale. I've got an empty enclosure in my house. I'm going to go buy it. Um, there's a yeah. lot, a lot more consideration, a lot more people involved. And it usually starts with, um, at least for our facility, I would imagine other facilities do it somewhat similar, if not the same. Uh, every year or every other year, um, they, there are meetings that are called collection planning meetings where uh, the curators, animal care directors, uh, people, the managers of other departments that aren't even animal related get involved and they sit there and go, okay, here's what we have. Here are some suggestions for the coming years on what we'd like to possibly add. What are your thoughts? Can we pull this off in these ways? How does this work for everybody? And once it makes it through the first just kind of propositional stage of suggestion, then um, then they go into looking at, okay, can we budget for this animal? Do we have the space? Um, do we have the knowledge expertise or do we need to bring some consultants in? Um, is this feasible with our capabilities as far as in-house or do we need to contract out for, you know, say an exhibit design, things like that. So there's a lot of considerations and, uh, and I appreciate this aspect more than most, but our safety and security director, he listens to everything that everybody on animal care has to say. And he's not necessarily uh, an animal guy, but working at the zoo for 20 some odd years, he kind of knows his way around certain things. And, uh, he, he has a very powerful say in some of those considerations. And, um, for example, we only keep venomous animals that are covered under the CROFAB anti-venom spectrum because the rest of it is considerably uh, more potent, a lot of them are anyway, and that anti-venom uh-huh. is expensive. So there's budgetary and safety considerations right there that are right. a great example of some of the decision-making process. But... Uh, you know, if it's something that isn't super dangerous and it isn't going to require heavy modification and it actually fits in something that, you know, has already been discussed and kind of approved to start looking for uh, in those collection planning meetings, then it really does make it a lot easier to just say, okay, does this fit? Is this animal that is available on this this list amongst those fit some of these preset plans that we've discussed about Um so we, for example, um, we used to have a, a Bengal monitor who uh, passed mm-hmm. away of old age natural causes when I was still a volunteer, so about six, seven years ago. And ever since then, we've kind of been lacking a big lizard in the collection. And my, my uh, director, she's always been fond of having some of the, the star players in, in all the the different departments and a big lizard is a big animal, a big draw. And as much as we like to showcase every animal, no matter how big and really hit home their importance, sometimes you got to get people in the door with that big eye-catching animal. And, and we also like to have a good variety of education animals. So we're sitting there going, okay, let's see if we can somewhere down the line, find a, a big lizard either for display or something for education. And immediately we're thinking, well, I don't know, tegus, monitor, something along those lines. But we'll, we'll, we'll keep our options open to see what's out there. Well, one day, um, long story short, I find uh, a water monitor in a local rescue that uh, young guy or young animal. And uh, this is the middle of December. I got the vets to come take a look at him. I was personally there handling him. So immediately his disposition is, a, you know, pretty good to go and, his bill of health looked pretty good on initial inspection and it kind of fit the, it fit the bill, it fit the plans. It just so happened to also be a rescue. So it fit the mission of what 
some of what we do is. And next thing you know, we're setting up quarantine and bringing them into the zoo. And now we, it's been about a year and a half, and we've got a, uh, a, a I guess it's a southern, you know, uh, Asian water monitor in our collection. And it's, it's awesome when it works out like that. It doesn't always work out like that, but occasionally right. it does. You know, um, Owen was on GTP Keeper Radio uh, the other night, and they were talking about quarantine. I'm just curious about how strict is quarantine when it comes to a zoo setting. That's uh, a great question. I actually have learned a lot and and modeled my own quarantine procedures about that. But uh, I think every facility has somewhat similar quarantine regulations, and I think the final say comes down to the vet's. okay, but our, our vet likes to be extra cautious with our quarantine, and I couldn't appreciate that anymore. I mean, it's fantastic. We have a very, very extensive procedure. So if an animal comes into quarantine, we have certain spaces set up that are strictly quarantine buildings. Nothing else goes in there, and we have separate uh, like water bowls, furniture, tools, uh, gloves, disinfectants, whole water systems, air conditioning systems, like everything is separate. There is no cross-contamination with any of the collection once something's in quarantine. And, you know, we don't service them until the end of the day if possible. Otherwise, we set somebody as quarantined for, you know, the rest of the afternoon or the entire day. Um, We, you know, have a certain minimum for uh, fecal sample collection, especially with our, our reptiles, and the duration is pretty long for the majority of them. With with a lot of mammals and birds, you can usually get pretty uh, extensive results that are reliable in a shorter time frame, but as anybody knows, reptiles take a long time to give you fecal samples. It's hard to get blood. Um, a lot of the potential diseases, parasites, and things like that that you would be looking for, sometimes you don't show up for the first six months to a year or years even Mm -hmm. um, in some extreme cases. And so, for example, uh, uh, my vet likes to quarantine any new snakes for a minimum of six months. And it's, it's great, and it's very cautious, and there's a lot to be said for that. The only downside to that is it's just like, man, I really want to work with them. I want to get them out, but I have to wait till next year. Um, but we, you know, for that that level of caution, we've never had any uh, any outbreaks of diseases, never any issues. I'm knocking on wood as I'm saying this. We've we've never had anything like that. And and everybody who works on our team, pretty much from the get go, learns about those cross contamination quarantine procedures and. And our vet staff is on, is really on top of that, and I commend them highly for how well they do that. And and it's great. And the animals show you know the the benefits of that by being healthy and living a really long time because of that level of of care and and you know caution that goes into that. So you know feeding tools don't leave the building once they're in there. Furniture and and hides and water bowls do not leave those buildings when they're in there. There's you know, whole like gloves and gowns and smocks and all sorts of covers and clothes and masks and things that you wear because if, even if I'm doing that at the end of the day, I still have to come home to my animals. So mm-hmm. I change my clothes before I even deal with anything of my animals. I mean, it's very strict. And for that, for those reasons alone, I actually do the same thing with uh, some of my animals that I get in. Um, 
yeah, I got the, those import IJs that, um, Eric, you got a couple of those, and yeah. I, I follow the same quarantine protocols. I have them in a completely different room in a different part of the house, and, you know, I got to clean their water bowl tonight, and I'm going to do that at the end of the night and take a shower afterwards before I do anything else with any of my other animals. And, you know, there's no cross-contamination. I've got gloves over there. I've got fecal containers, everything set up sterile. I mean, it's, it's, it's important. There's a lot of value to, to quarantining your animals properly, especially if, you know, you've got a, a pretty extensive collection or there's a lot of, I hate to bring money into it, but if you've got a lot invested in it, and I hate that word investment when it comes to your animals, but ultimately that, that kind of is a bottom line sometimes. And you, sure. know, you hate to lose an animal yeah. because you were a little lax with your procedure or something like that. But, you know, it's, uh, it's worth it. You might miss a breeding season because of it, but hey, it's better than missing breeding seasons for years to come because your entire collection got wiped out. Yeah. So quarantine yeah. is a is a big deal. It is. Um the you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier um the uh uh species survival plan uh for mm. certain animals. Uh or the uh SSPs. Um, because that like set off a chill down my spine for, you know, having mm. to deal with those. But um I've, I have several friends who work in other zoos, um, not in the reptile setting, but more in the mammal setting, and uh, one of which was rhinos. And they had to get approval to breed their rhinos, and they got approval, and then the approval got taken away uh, by the AZA. So they had to pretty much, like, hope to God that no babies were coming or uh, things would get a little dicey. Have you ever really had that and that's only like one story. Have you ever had any kind of AZA involvement with your collection with the reptiles that would kind of like maybe might kind of rub somebody who was just getting into the zoo setting maybe the wrong way? Yeah. Um, well, right off the bat, when if you don't know anything about that, and then you're sitting there going, well, why not? This is a great idea. And then there's some, you know, proverbial arbitrary board that says, no, you may not. And you're like, why not? (laughs) That's frustrating, right? But then you start learning more about why they make those reasonings. And and the more you learn about it, the more you you realize, oh, that's actually a really good idea. I I get it now. But um, yeah, uh, I, I can't say I've ever had any sort of AZA ruling or uh sort of decision that has interrupted future plans for breeding or things like that. We are a smaller facility, so we're not uh, chock full of all these animals that need everybody to breed everything. But um, for the longest time, I was under the impression that uh, our Chinese alligator wasn't recommended to breed because she was produced at the Bronx Zoo, and that year, or a few years, they had a lot of success breeding them, and so that gene pool was fairly well represented. And I'm sitting there going, but I want baby gators! And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, and yeah. and come to find out that um, their situation is a lot more dire than uh, I had previously understood, and there's some talks about maybe um, increasing the number of recommended breedings. I, I know the, uh, the SSP coordinator... Uh, personally, after uh, my this conference I did in Florida last month, and I got to to know him a little bit better and learn more about the 
the, the program as a whole. And so now there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm like, ooh, you're saying baby gators is, yeah. is a possibility. And he says, well, maybe, let's see. And, and when they make those decisions, there's actually a really uh, extensive logarithm and this whole program. And they get together and they look at an entire database with all the animals in the collections in the country and they look at the genetic diversity between all of these individuals, and this program uh, orders them in terms of the most diverse lineage. So you've got animals that are 96.7% uh, different and unrelated from other ones, and they'll make pairing recommendations based on that um, level of unrelatedness, and oftentimes some of the smaller zoos uh, that you know, might not have facilities to hold 20 of these animals that are really well set up for breeding. Typically, those an, those facilities end up being holding facilities, and there's there's nothing wrong with that because that's equally as important because if no. you take these animals from another yeah. facility that are otherwise taking up space for animals that need to be better represented, you're still contributing to, to the entire population as a whole by relieving some pressure on, on that other facility. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's bound to happen sooner or later. Like, hey, I'd really love to breed uh, false water cobras, but I could find that, uh, you know, our guy has enough babies out there and he's not very high on that list or, or you know, who knows. And right. it's the same with mammals, birds, you name it. So the I, I definitely have heard that. And I've also heard that the, like, uh, if you had – animals of opposite sex group together and they're not clear to breed, they may actually ask you to destroy the eggs or something along those lines as well. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, yeah. Of course, if you're that's holding what animals heard. I mean yeah. 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 If you're holding animals that are not recommended to breed and something happens, it's usually consideration that is is talked about and discussed um, even at the time of placing that animal into your facility before you even get to that point. Um, so whether that yeah. be, um, just putting that little note in your folder that says, Hey, around this time of year, be a little more alert about any breeding sort of things and, you know, do what you can to keep them separate at certain times of the year or don't, you know, cool them if they're in the building. So you try to prevent any unwanted breedings as much as possible. Like what we separated that male PG skink and kind of ended that, um, magic show right there. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for not breeding animals for the for the overall good of that True. population, too. Right. So w- when I was working at the zoo, probably the biggest shock or disconnect is that these, you, you try to, you treat them almost like your collection. And, of course, you do get attached to various animals. And the biggest shock is that at one point, we were requested to send one of our Nile Crocs to another zoo and there was nothing we could do about it. And it was like, he's going Monday. And it was, and that was the biggest shock for me at least is that, you know, these aren't your animals and they can be removed at any moment. I mean, have you guys, have you had any kind of, uh, would that be something you said you kind of need to kind of come to terms with? if you're going to be in a zoo job or a zoo setting? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when I first started out, one of the things that there wasn't like a main focus of, of a point of discussion, but it was definitely referenced was that 
you know, these aren't your animals, don't get attached to them. Um, uh-huh. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. They're they're probably going to go out at some point, and they're not my animals. But you know, it's it's hard. You can't you can't ever do it on this like yeah. Like, I'm day. not gonna get Come on. Yeah, like I'm not gonna get attached to the tarantula, but um. What uh, the hell are you doing, filling a glass? Yeah. Somebody <laughs> <pull> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I thought it was on mute. My fault. The hell. <laughs> yeah. Making Damn Everyone over there. <laughs> yeah, he's drinking already. Christ. Anyway, <laughs> back to what you were saying. Um, I could imagine like that, you know, uh, that's got to be one of the biggest things that you kind of try to hammer home, but it still, again, it's almost like if someone were to wander into your collection to be like, guess what? This one is leaving yep. tomorrow. And it's like, wait, why? And yeah, yeah, yeah so. it's definitely, it, it's going to happen one way or another. Um, it's, it, I guess. For me, it's easier to deal with because there are several hundred animals that I take care of on a daily basis. So I'm literally spending a minute or two or maybe five with right. the majority of these animals on a daily basis. So some of them you just don't even build that level of uh, repertoire or familiarity with. And some of them, I mean, it's really easy to, like, you're like, oh, that's a cute little fuzzy baby giraffe. And then it's got to go, and you're like, No! <laughs> Because they're no, adorable and the they're fuzzy and yeah, yeah. yeah, but then like you got this, I don't know. I guess uh, we'll say a, a stick insect, something that is not. It doesn't <laughs> evoke images and feelings of oh man, I really want to cuddle this. This is my best friend. And then when it goes out, you're like, but yeah, Steve, the stick insect. You know, it's it's not like that. Um, yeah, with the majority of them, but you're not yeah, the we, gate. You're not the gate yeah. crying about a spurthy tortoise that they brought around and that they're exactly. taking away from you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So it's it's there though. I mean, I feel bad for uh, the the bird and mammal keepers. They have fewer animals that they work with, so they they bond yeah. with a lot of those animals. And actually, a lot of them do require that sort of intense level of relationship. We uh, to give you an example, we are shipping out our two um, male silverback gorillas, one of which just went out to his new home in uh, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo like a week ago, and the other one, they're actually prepping him for transport as we speak right now to go out. Um, they're probably waiting for him to get in the, uh, to do their exam before getting them in all uh, ready to go for his travel. But, uh, you know, the keepers that work with those animals, um, they work with... Uh, that line in particular, they, they take care of a, a mob of meerkats. They're, they're a herd of five or six, five, five giraffes, five and these two gorillas. And so they spend a significant amount of each of their days with each one of these animals to a point where they learn what they look like. They learn their personality. They learn what they, these animals don't like and what they do and this and that. And they, without even trying to develop some sort of a relationship with them. And it's hard on them when these animals go off to their new home to breed or, or for us to make room for more animals that need to breed here or whatever it is. And, you know, there, I'm, uh, I guess I'm a little more close to that particular line. My girlfriend is one of the, uh, the gorilla giraffe meerkat keepers. And so she's over there. Uh, 
she uh, yeah. she was telling me like, oh, I'm really sad about Goma going out, and I'm really gonna miss him, and they're really excited anytime they get updates with him. I'm like, wow, like I don't know what that's like. I really I really haven't had that experience. I would imagine I would feel the same way if uh, if our Chinese alligator went or something like that. Or I would I would be pretty bummed. But um, mm. I mean, yeah, that's something else. Is that you may um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you may submit for the Chinese alligator to be bred in the SSP, and they could determine that rather than send the boy to you, you should send her to wherever mm-hmm. he is, and mm-hmm. then. Now you've just now you've just written this project. It's almost like if I were to be like, you know what, I really want rough scales, and I would get all this stuff ready for rough scales, and I would buy a female rough scale, and then it would be like gone because I bought the rough scale. It goes over here and it breeds in somebody else's place. It's yeah. it's one of those things that it's like by you wanting to or having an interest in possibly breeding this animal, you may have taken it away from you. So absolutely. Yeah, that's Damn. a very, very real eventuality. And the one thing that uh, you've got to tell yourself in that type of situation is there's a reason it's happening, and it's important, and it, it probably needs to happen. And as much as you want to keep them all and, you know, name them all and have birthday parties for them and stuff, sometimes it's better <laughs> for that animal is to go somewhere else. And can, can, just, can you please – make like a cupcake for that really big rattlesnake for its birthday <laughs> and like just just like put it in its cage or something like that or nearby and take yeah. a picture and throw it up on the pick of the week when that happens. I mean, just, Oh yeah. I'll, I'll be, be sure awesome. to get something going. But yeah. We, whenever we have, uh, whenever we have birthdays come up for some of those animals, we definitely do some goofy things like, uh, I'm pretty sure for our Burmese pythons birthday, we we like took photos of them. We made like uh, scented boxes that we wrapped in wrapping paper and put bows and ribbons and put them in his enclosure. So he got some enrichment where it's smelly and it gets him. And we're just like, let's get some photos of them. Yeah, and, and I'm gonna give him a big old rabbit, and he's gonna be so happy. And it's like, yeah, it's like our kid, and it's a snake, and he doesn't care. <laughs> This yeah, box rolled over colorful wrapping yeah. paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, looking back on it, some of those things, I'm like, man, that was goofy. And I'm sure some people walking by are like, what, what the heck are they doing? These people are weird. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to have fun. If it, you're not having fun, it ain't worth doing. But Absolutely. What's that kind go ahead, of. Go ahead, Eric. No, no, no. no, no. If I keep asking. If, all right. Um, you mentioned enrichment. And. Mm-hmm. When I was in the zoo, I was a, I was uh, the head of the department for reptiles, and we went through obviously the inspections for you know the powers on high. You had to have a lot of enrichment for mammals, birds, things like that, and mm-hmm. we had very little enrichment for reptiles just because of how much was required. You. Mm-hmm kind of see it shifting a little bit more where you need to include more enrichment, uh, especially with the smarter species like monitors and crocodilians and things like that. Yeah. Uh, at first, I kind of didn't see, like a few years ago when I was first getting started, I was like, man, there's snakes, they don't care. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of my animals in particular, like it's, it, to at first glance and with very 
limited thinking into it, it doesn't seem all that beneficial. But then once you do it a few times and you realize, you know, what happens as a result of it, you start realizing, like, how important it is. And then you start thinking about um, what their life is like in a zoo. And and let me say, first off, that uh, mammals and birds, they have to do a lot more of it because if they don't, those animals get bored much faster Mm -hmm. and that can result in cranky animals that don't shift or don't eat or you know, attack one another or the keepers and things. So it's actually um, much, from my perspective, it seems much more in the forefront of their minds. And so they do it a lot better than we do, admittedly. Um, But, uh, you know, there are certainly some animals that when you give them that sort of enrichment, you see a shift in their behavior. You're like, wow, I'm really glad I did that. I need to remember to do that more. Um, You know, especially like, Stereotypic behaviors, you'll see a lot, like an elephant just standing there bobbing its head or an animal pacing at the front of the enclosure or, you know, just doing something that they wouldn't naturally do. And the public sees that, and they they sit there, and their first impression is, man, that animal must be bored. And that looks terrible on the zoo when, when somebody walks away with that impression. And so AZA actually mandates enrichment uh, in all of the facilities that are accredited for all of their animals. Like there has to be an enrichment program. And so here at Santa Barbara, we have uh, an enrichment committee that meets at some regular interval um, and they discuss a lot of the different things and they make sure it's going and it's written into our protocols and the standard operating guidelines and what you can and can't use. And we actually have a lot of people that uh, are very passionate about um, the enrichment, and they've taken that program to some pretty great lengths. And we have an entire room with racks floor to ceiling of all sorts of assorted boxes and toys and boomer balls and things. And we actually have uh, a lot of publicity revolving around that, and we get tons of donations of, like, dozens of grocery bags that are stuffed full of empty toilet paper rolls because they can be used extensively. And so we, we have a pretty well-developed program about it, um, there's like binders and lists of what's approved enrichment for certain animals, certain things that you have to mm-hmm. be sensitive about. Um, we can cut browse on grounds that it has to be approved and it's got to be the right kind. So we have an entire browse book and everything that's on ground and what's toxic and what isn't, what you can use and what you can't use. And, and so with our animals, it is challenging. Um, you know, take snakes, for example. They don't care that you threw a cardboard box with tunnels in it. But if you drip, uh, say, some fox scent or some deer lure in that box, that snake is going to go bonkers on that thing for, even if it's only 20 minutes, you've totally changed that animal's day. Um, we, uh, we have a bull snake, a big six-foot male bull snake, and that guy is puppy dog tame, by the way. He's tons of fun. Uh, another education mm-hmm. animal, but if we leave his enclosure the same way for like a week to 10 days, we see this odd behavior out of him where he starts doing this really twitchy, jerky, like it's almost like a nervous tick, but he's like looking, he's like, and he's just kind of like jolting around. And we even got like the vet involved and we did all these exams to see if there was something going on. And like, obviously nothing was wrong. And we started looking at maybe for behavioral thing. And the next thing you know, we, we made it a, a major point to change up the, the furniture's enclosure a lot and do all these things. And boom, that behavior is gone. We don't see it unless we you know, are slacking on the enrichment. So we start giving it piles of uh, substrate from another snake enclosure, or I'll take all of the, the 
different like rocks and sticks and things out, and I'll put them in there. That smells different. Oh, there's that thing again. Um, All right, we got it. No one's correct. Will you stop it? <laughs> oh, I know. Or at this point, just kill them. I mean, they <laughs> had so many chances to move. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so when we, like the other day, we had this big old, uh, like, five-foot panel of a half a cork round, and I cut half of it and just gave it to him. I just, I just did that. It took me, like, all of two minutes. And all of a sudden, he just, you know, he's awake. He's cruising all over the place. He won't leave the dang thing alone. He's going to the bathroom on it. He's flipping it over. He's doing this and that. And for three days, this animal is obsessed with this piece of cork. And that's all I did. I didn't, I didn't spend, you know, hours planning this out. I didn't have to, like, interrupt my day. I just, as I'm going along, I'm like, hmm, he's had the same setup for a while. I'm going to move the water over here or uh, do something like that or give him a tube or whatever or, like, all the snakes. I'm taking all your hides out and everybody's getting somebody else's. And, you know, it, it makes a big difference. And the same thing with training. Training can be used as a form of enrichment as well. And it can also work to, you know, modify or improve some certain behaviors that might make your day easier, like shifting for cleaning or uh, offering a, a limb for further inspection or, you know, whatever it may be. So enrichment is very much um, an important and, and necessary part of what we do. If you think about these animals, we've, we've taken a lot of their choices away by them being in the zoo, and I'm not saying we took them from the wild and we limited them. They, they were already there. We're trying to resolve some of those things so that maybe zoos don't have to have, you know, everything. And anyway, that's a whole other ballgame that can upset a lot of people. But, um, uh, hmm. yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really important to, to do some of that stuff. They, they can't just roam around and explore new territories. They can't go walking for miles to find a mate. They, the lions cannot follow herds of whatever their prey item is for an entire migration till they get the right spot where it's good for ambush. I mean, they don't have that option. It's not like they know it because it, most of them didn't come from the wild, but at least what we can do as their caregivers is try and give them options, give them right. you know, foraging opportunities, give them a chance to say, no, you know what? I don't want to, um, I don't want to, do any training or I don't want to play with that toy or I do want to look for that food or I do want to climb up that rock and jump and try and spend hours getting a branch or whatever it is. And when you give them those opportunities, you, you get a whole different animal. I mean, you see a different side of that. You see natural behaviors. That animal then is, I guess, from an anthropomorphic perception, a little bit happier. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, enough can't be said for, for getting them enrichment. It is very awesome to see uh, an elephant reach up and have to stand and move this big old stub and a big old log to reach this palm brow that you've hung up on an 18-foot umbrella, you know? I mean, it's impressive to watch. It's cool. It is. That's awesome. Definitely. Yeah. So – I'm just curious, what is a day in the life of a zookeeper like? Like, <laughs> how, does, how yeah. does your day start? What do you do? And, you know, when does it end? Well, um, I'll give you a, an insight onto my day. I can't say that it's the same for everybody else, obviously. Um, but uh, for me, it 
every morning we have a morning meeting, everything that's on the calendar, whether it be encounters, tours, birthday parties, things like that. Everybody meets, and we just go over that so it's on everybody's radar first thing in the morning. Then from there, um, uh, we go to the animal kitchen. We're very fortunate to have uh, a nutrition staff that uh, preps the majority of our diets for us. So we go there, and basically I walk into a big old freezer or a refrigerator, and I have a shelf, and if there's any diets for the day, and we have a schedule for everything, so we know what we should and shouldn't be getting. Um, I go in there and grab these buckets and take them up, and we start incorporating that into our day. Um, I usually don't have to do much food prep, although when I get the opportunity, it's fun. It's a little different. But uh, we, we, we get up, grab the diets, take them to our area, um, turn on the few lights that aren't set on timers. Um, well, first things, we go get coffee that uh, my team is absolutely caffeine hooked. And that's <laughs> Keeps all. you alive. It's, it's, un, it's unspoken. We grab the diets, we go into the area, and everybody grabs a coffee cup without fail. First thing, down to the, the kitchen to go get coffee. And then we start the day. And then, you know, <laughs> we usually uh, we break up our line uh, in certain chunks depending on how many of us are there that day, what we've got going on, um, and then, you know, it can either be divided into two lines or three, uh, again, depending on how many people are there. And it's usually just going around and doing some routine maintenance on every single species in every single space throughout the zoo, whether it be just changing water, misting, and throwing in crickets for the dart frogs, or scooping up what little tortoise food is left, changing their waters, making sure their dens are clean. Or for some of them, it's just like, they're alive? Okay, they're good. And, that, and that's it. That's all they require, especially with, like, the venomous animals. If we don't need to feed them that day and there isn't a mess in there, um, we usually leave them alone, just make sure that they're alive and well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a whole building where it's, I put all the food and water and diets and things that I might need on this cart, and I just go down the line, change water daily, uh, miss the animals that are humid, requiring species, give them food if, if it's their, their uh, day for feeding, um, get a visual inspection on everybody. Uh, we usually start a couple hours before the public is there, and that's just to get things open and going, and if there's any issues or anything wrong, um, we can usually at least start to address it before the public's there. Again, we don't try and hide or sugarcoat things for the public, but some things are really hard to interpret, and we'd like people to, you know, see animals doing well rather than um, give them something to see that might be a little bit harder for them to discern what's going on. Um, and it's not like we just throw a right. sign out there because most people don't read signs, but we try. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and, and so usually the first half of the day is changing water, putting out diets, taking care of the real basic stuff. And unless we have something crazy going on, then in the afternoon we do uh, project-related things, whether it be, um, you know, working on digging up holes in this yard or hanging up brows in Richmond or cleaning the alligator pools or building, you know, new things for some of these spaces or, or just long-term projects that we've been getting going for a while. We just chip away at little by little. So the afternoons, it's without being kind of like free time, it's whatever we want to do. So like, oh, we should really clean the gator pool. It's looking kind of mucky. Um, oftentimes we'll start that right before we go to lunch sort of thing and then finish it in the afternoon and this and that. So, but uh, most of the year, it's 8 to 5. Um, during the summer, we come in an hour earlier just to get things open earlier because it's light earlier, so 7 to 4 those days. But uh, it, it is somewhat 
same routine every day in terms of procedure, but every day is different. And my team is really, really fortunate because it's not the exact same thing every day for, like, you know, some of the, the mammal lines. Like, that's all they do is they take care of those three species, and it's, it's almost the same thing every day. But for us, it's like, okay, what part of the line did you do yesterday? All right, did you want to do the other part? Cool, great, and now we're going to do this. And then, you know, I can go an entire month without having to be on this part of the line that requires me to clean filters and scrub the piranha tank, but then just – by virtue of how things worked out, then the entire next month, I'm scrubbing that piranha tank every week, you know, and it's totally different. So, um, right. it, it's really nice. It, it keeps things novel. So, yeah. Cool. Keeper enrichment. <laughs> so, what what would you say is the biggest misconception about zoos today um, in 2016? Uh, the biggest thing that is is across the board is the the perception that zoos are a prison for animals. And it's such, uh, I mean, anybody knows that there's somebody, someone that they've talked to that has that opinion. And you know what? It's, it's a tough subject because you can end up losing that audience if you're trying to discuss it at all within seconds, depending on, how ingrained that perception is and some of the word choice you use. And so it's a really delicate, delicate thing. I mean, you could say one word and all of a sudden they're off to the races saying, but you said this, but you said this, and all of a sudden they're not listening to you. And then you just, you know, secured them as a a zoo hater for life sort of a thing. But I think what we try to do, uh, and this proverbially is, is zoos as a whole, is really put out that zoos are not just an area where these animals live. These animals are ambassadors for their wild counterparts. These animals, um, you know, might be the last of their kind if their, their wild ancestors don't exist out there anymore. And so they serve as an educational component to say, Hey, look, this is why pollution is bad, or this is why you should be more water wise. Um, Sometimes, you know, like with some of the snakes, like uh, Womas aren't necessarily, endangered I don't believe or anything like that but uh you know I, I'll take him out and because he's bright and he's orange and he's you know somewhat sizable already people are walking by like oh my god a snake wait he's gold he's kind of pretty what is that and next thing you know I've got an entire audience that 15 minutes from that that point on they're going to be talking about snakes on their entire drive home it's going to you know translate into more conversations later on and a positive perception and and so conservation is is the biggest thing that people don't necessarily know that zoos participate in. And uh, it's not for lack of advertising, trust me. That our PR department does a lot of that. And you can only reach so many people. You can only change so many people's minds. Some people just, you know, if they don't, if they don't want to be helped, you can't help them sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, right. we, take a, we take a lot of pride in, in at least doing some educational components but we also do a lot of direct conservation work, like I said, with foxes and condors and red-legged frogs and things like that. Um, so, you know, at Santa Barbara, we we have this program that we do. Uh, it's our Keeper Talks program. And every single day, we have a minimum number of required Keeper Talks that we schedule, whether it be five on weekdays and eight on, on the weekends. We try to, like, make a concerted effort to – at least reach out and connect with people because 
you never know who you're going to get. Every once in a while, you might be talking to somebody that works for PETA or something that is just a complete zoo hater, and they're incognito. You're never going to know who you're talking to or who you're really sharing that positive message with. Um, right. Especially with all all that negative press out there with stuff like blackfish and uh, you know yeah. all of that. Sure. It's yeah. It's an it's an uphill battle. Don't get me wrong, but I got to tell you, it's worth putting in that extra effort because. I've probably talked to thousands of kids this year already that started off and they wouldn't even come within 100 feet of me when I'm out there with a snake. And 10 minutes later, they're like, Mom, I want a pet snake, you know. And next thing you know, I've got a snake advocate walking away from me. So it's it's conservation. Zoos are probably one of the biggest network of organizations that are out there supporting conservation. I mean, there's plenty of other ones. There's the Orient Society out on the East Coast. There's... Arizona Herpetological Society out here. There's tons of these people that are out there, but, you know, the biggest thing across the board is limited time, limited staff, limited resources. So zoos are a really big network that essentially perform uh, large, widespread conservation efforts, whether it just be education or actually sending people over overseas into all these countries to, like, teach these local villagers, like, hey, don't, don't kill these frogs and move these guys or, or whatever it is. So um, zoos used to be very much so just a roadside attraction, like 100 years ago, whatever it was, Some, sometimes even less, uh, less far off in, in, the, in the past. And that has shifted significantly in the last few decades because, you know, it's becoming more apparent that the, the natural habitat and the quote-unquote wild is disintegrating, it's disappearing, these animals are disappearing. And everyone's going, hey, we should do something about that. How do we do that? Who, who, who do we do this? And next thing you know, the people that work in zoos, they are already in a position because they know a lot about these animals. They're passionate about it. And next thing you know, you've just got this body of people that are totally motivated. They're going to bend over backwards to do whatever it takes to at least raise awareness, if not get boots on the ground and do stuff. So I would mm-hmm. say the biggest thing that zoos do that people don't um, – know about, hear about, or oftentimes overlook is perform some very essential tools in conservation efforts. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you think of a book like The Invisible Ark um, and the idea that, you know, uh, more and more habitat is being lost, um, I guess in in some instances, the only place that, like, you know, kids 20 years from now are going to be able to see like something like a tiger is going to be in a zoo. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't know. I, I never understood that. I, I mean, I, I kind of, it's, I, I guess it's kind of a struggle that you go back and forth with, you know, I don't know about you guys personally, but sometimes you like, you look at the snake and it's in a box and you know, that kind of thing, just with your personal collection. And, but you know, if you in turn touch somebody that uh, then in turn cares about the environment, you know, just because they're now appreciate a snake. Um, I don't know. I think that makes a difference. I don't know what you guys think, but. Well, that's something I definitely wrestled with when I was working in the zoo, but it was kind of like the, you know, this is this is here for this one reason, and it is to one preserve the species, two raise awareness for its wild counterparts who are 
in some kind of a bad way, sometimes in a real bad way. So uh, there's definitely that. And then there was the option of the, if it's here, I'm going to try to give it the best life as I can because it's here. Because the same thing of what you were saying, Riley, if you can get somebody uh, appreciating snakes just by hanging outside with Luoma, by the next time you end up seeing that cat, he may be all about reading it up, getting the preservation for stuff. You know, you may have started somebody who could, for all we know, become somebody just like you or become a researcher, a conservationist. I mean, they got to start somewhere. And the only way you're going to get people to care about an animal or a situation is to show it to them kind of like in their face. Like, nobody yeah. really cares when you show you pictures. They need to see the animal. Yeah, you've got you've to gotta make that personal connection. Um, you've really yeah. got to bring it to them. And, and it's interesting. I, I, for whatever reason, my brain likes to remember certain phrases, but not, like, where I remember them from or who said them. So, um, yeah. But one of the things that always um, sticks out to me is, you know, people don't want to learn. If you tell them, like, hey, we're going to go do something that's education, you're going to learn something. They're like, oh, great. Um, I'd rather yeah. watch TV. And, but yep. if you say, hey, we're going to go do something cool, we're going to go hiking, and then, like, next thing you know, you're, like, catching lizards or something like that, um, or whatever it is, or you see something, next thing you know, you've got somebody's interest. Or, I don't know, it could be something as simple as, like, look at that, that's a piece of snake skin. Did you know snake shed? And all of a sudden, you you've just blown somebody's mind. And for the next four hours, that's all they can think about and all they can talk about. And, you know, then they're going to start looking it up and they're going to stumble across this. And this ripple effect just takes off. And um, it's kind of like that, that movie, Pay It Forward. You know, it, it's contagious and it yeah. spreads exponentially. Right. It just gets going. So it's it's a fantastic thing to watch. And I'm, I don't know, if anybody's never had the opportunity to, to like, share a snake or something with somebody for the first time for that person's experience and you see that person's face light up and you don't think that's a magical experience, I'm sorry, like you missed the point. But that's that's some of the most profoundly like significant, impactful things you can do to somebody and it's and it's positive. And I don't know, there's very little that gets me more excited um than seeing a like a two year old come up whose grandma said like rattlesnakes are evil. We kill them all the time to like coming up and, and seeing like, this is a gopher snake. They're different from rattlesnakes, but they live in the same habitats and they're really important for X, Y, and Z. And would you like to pet it? And all of a sudden the kid's like, wait, I, I can touch this. Don't they bite? Yes. And the next thing you know, that kid asks you a question. If that kid has asked you a question, he is thinking you inspired him. You've stimulated some thought, some original individual curiosity and I got to tell you, there's no looking back after you do that. It's it's contagious. I love, absolutely love doing that stuff. Yes, and, and even if the kid doesn't grow up to be a herpetologist, maybe he won't beat a, a, a freaking, you know, gopher snake to death with his shovel in the garden. I mean, like, you know, maybe exactly. we'll get away from that crap. So mm-hmm. it, it's just kind of that stuff, and, you know, the inspiration for anybody, for any type of animal, uh, yeah. is always the way. Is always the best way to get someone to care and to help. Um, I don't know if you've uh, either of you guys have ever been to the Columbus Zoo in Ohio. Yeah, um, yeah, I have actually. 
I love that. I love that zoo. Um, it's one of the only perks I have for working with Nationwide is I get to go there. So um, mm-hmm. uh, the they have the one thing up in front of their tigers. I used to be my my one friend used to be a tiger keeper there, and they have all the statues of all these tigers and of all the different subspecies of tiger. And several oh, of the statues yeah. have been have been destroyed and crumbled and are like in shattered. And you start reading and you're realizing that the shattered statues are the extinct subspecies of tiger. Then you're like, now all of a sudden you feel just sad yeah. for mm-hmm. all this. And cause you just were, you just spent 20 minutes looking at beautiful Amor tigers and the cubs and all that fun stuff. And now you come out here and they have all the statues and several of them are destroyed. And then you see this bell that apparently they ring when a species become extinct. And they're like, well, we don't do it all the time, but if we did, we'd be ringing it every eight minutes. It's like now it's just a wonderful punch in the gut. And, you know, maybe that won't inspire a kid, but that'll inspire somebody older who really cares and doesn't want to have to see that thing happen anymore. I mean, I don't want to go back and have to worry about, you know, if I go back in a few years, is one of the other statues going to be, destroyed i mean that's something you think about and it's it's terrible so that's what zoos should be doing is trying to help the animal as well as inspire us as zoo goers to do a little bit more to care a little bit more so and that's I yeah i'll do a very good job of that mm-hmm. i think it's um i think it's toledo zoo or uh, no maybe it's uh no it might actually be omaha's henry Dorley zoo um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Either way, whichever zoo it is, they've uh, they've started doing these exhibits where they have some of their animals in the space that is designed to look like this destroyed, eroded habitat, and it's got like trash cans and junk and garbage and like dead tree stumps and this and that in there. And then there's this like leopard walking around, and you're like, oh my god. What, what is, what is he oh. doing in there? That's a horrible environment. And it's like all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. That's brilliant. Because now people are not only seeing that animal that they came to see, but they can't not see the fact that that habitat doesn't exist or it is not pristine and green and full of, you know, that animal's food and things like that. And it, they can't ignore that point at all. And it's it's very creative. It's it's rough to see, though. I got to tell you, I saw some some photos and it's, Whew, man, talk about depressing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got a question, and you know, as far as like with your breeding programs and whatnot works, how does like how do you guys set up a pedigree system? I mean, do you keep lineage? Uh, how does how does that work? Yeah. Um, any sort of breeding, especially for program animals, even for animals that are not. Uh, in uh, like an SSP, there is a lot of attention towards keeping lineage, so that that um, that computer program with all the logarithms that I told you about that like it keeps track of like the most uh, genetically diverse individuals in, in captive populations. What it also does is it has uh, the information on who the sire and dam of that animal and who produced them and what year and how related they are to other animals. So uh, lineage is absolutely crucial for those decisions. Um, and even the animals that aren't, uh, aren't related, it's still 
uh, a very important consideration. So with those Amazon milky tree frogs that, that we popped out more than we thought we would, um, they, uh, they came from two different gene pools. Um, we had some individuals that we got from Oakland Zoo that have since grown up and are now breeding like crazy. And then we had um, uh, a couple individuals that we already had in our collection from, gosh, I don't even remember what facility they were there before I started. And so they're from two different gene pools. And so we actually favored the eggs that those individuals laid versus the ones that finally grew up from Oakland and were just breeding amongst themselves. Now, right. with a lot of insects, uh, invertebrates, amphibians, and reptiles, some level of of uh, interrelated breeding doesn't show any ill side effects for several generations. Now, that's not to say that, like, we're just like, okay, yeah, go for it. We don't care. Um, we, we try to avoid it at, at, at all possible, but um, it, it does happen, I guess uh, I should say. But, um, yeah, we certainly try to prioritize that. If we want to breed anything, we try to make sure it's not a related breeding, and that's across the board. So it's, it's a mm-hmm. high consideration. Huh. Interesting. Um, what was the other question that I had? Uh, pedigrees. I was going to also something I was interested in, like, how do you, how do you, do you have to have a certain amount of time in before you're working with like, say venomous reptiles? Like how does that work as far as training and yeah. Um, for, for venomous, it, it is very much at the discretion of the facility, but that being said, they kind of run the same sort of system where there's a certain level of, uh, of training that goes into it. And then those that are already venomous certified at their organization, they also have to first step is like be comfortable with even getting somebody started on training. Like, yeah, yeah. level head. They're not, they're not going to train some guy who, you know, likes to pick up animals when you're not looking or leaves doors unlocked all the time sort of thing or likes to stick his fingers through the mesh in animals he's not paying attention to sort of thing. Um, so the first consideration is, okay, who's who do we trust? Who do we think is capable? Who has the flexibility in their schedule and would Im- improve our overall coverage on a weekly basis in terms of having more, more trained individuals? And then we all meet together as a team. Uh, those prospective individuals are discussed, and then we talk to them, and we we don't say, hey, we're going to train you. We say, hey, would you like to start this training? Because ultimately, if they're not comfortable doing it or they don't want to, you don't want them on the team. Um, that That's just dangerous. Um, there's no room right. for error. And so those are kind of the first steps. And then the way we do it is we kind of have uh, three different stages. The first stage is just, observational. You just simply watch um, how the existing certificated or certified individuals are doing their things, how they go about doing the feeding, the cleaning, the shifting, whatever it is. And you, uh, you have to hit a certain minimum of observations for each of the venomous species. Once you do the minimum, you bring it up to the person who's kind of in charge of, of making sure you're trained up, and then they decide whether or not they want you to do a few more or if they want somebody else on the team to see it just so they're comfortable sort of thing. And then the next stage is some practice handling with non-venomous animals. So that's when you really get the feel for snakes on hooks and how to shift and how to lift them up and manipulate them and move them around and how to keep yourself at a safe distance and deliver food and clean around them, X, Y, and Z. And um, 
And then same thing, you have a minimum number of those for each species. It's got to be approved by the folks training. They've got to make sure everybody's comfortable with, with what you're doing. And then once you get through that, and that those two stages alone can take six months or, or more um, just because it's sometimes difficult to, to knock them off the list uh, in a short amount of time. But um, the, the third stage is then uh, actually doing the venomous, procedures, whatever it be, feeding, handling, cleaning. And we start with the quote-unquote easiest or less dangerous one. Um, so for us, it's like we start with uh, beaded lizards because it's a beaded lizard. And and you kind of work your way up. And once you're comfortable with that and you do a, a set number minimum of that, if not more, then they move you up to the next one. And you kind of go up the ladder until you hit um, – Eastern Diamondback and False Water Cobra. And the reason why we consider False Water Cobra up there is because, first of all, technically they're rear fang, mildly venomous sort of thing. There's still risk of, you know, allergic reactions, X, Y, and Z. And they're a big snake, and he's fast, and he doesn't yeah. make it easy on you. So we, we treat it the same way, um, not just because insurance wants us to, but because it makes sense. And, um, and then everybody's got to be comfortable. Everybody's got to feel confident that you've exhibited, you at least know what you're doing and can make smart decisions in, in these situations. But then you're not done. Then behind that candidate's back, everybody goes and we talk to the safety and security director and he sets up a drill. And you don't know when it's coming. You don't know what the, the circumstances are. And he's, oh, man, he's evil. He really likes to throw curveballs in there. He likes to do a species that, like, the backup space isn't necessarily ideal or, you know, somebody's been, um, like, hypothetically bitten. You've got to respond to this. But then in the middle of it, there's an earthquake or something like that, you know. And you've got to respond based on all the training and protocols. And you've got to make the right decisions. And you've got to communicate properly. And he's filming it. And he's recording it. And everybody else is responding as if it's a real situation. And then afterwards, everybody gets together, they talk, and they reevaluate what went wrong, what worked, what didn't, X, Y, and Z. And then he types it all up, and everybody gets a, a, a written explanation and, and breakdown of how everything went with the actual radio transmissions. And then the team basically says, he did great, or we, we need more practice with this individual. And for me, it, it took a while. It took... Uh, Gosh, I want to say a little over a year before um, before I went through all of that and then had my drill. And, yeah, it was, gosh, I was sweating bullets. It was nerve-wracking because the professional storm is on. You've really got to demonstrate that your your teammates can rely on you and can count on you and that you're not going to make some stupid decision to get somebody killed or yourself or multiple mm-hmm. people or let an animal out, you know I mean? It's it's no joke. It's a very intense program, and I would imagine every other zoo has something very similar, if not almost identical to that, uh, in their protocol. Yeah. Um, I, I had to handle a Gaboon Viper as they shot questions and quizzed me, um, and uh, had, I had to answer them all uh, appropriately and correctly while I put the Gaboon Viper, while I took the Gaboon Viper out, cleaned the cage, and then put it back. So that was, that was my drill. That was, it was not, well, luckily our Gaboon Viper at the zoo was so fat and stupid that it really just kind (laughs) of, it was like handling a beaded lizard, but at the end of hooks. So it was like, eh, Mm -hmm. and it just kind of sat there. It made 
noises and then you put it down and he did other stuff. But yeah, it, it is one of those things where um, it also it's kind of like a culture shock, you know, um, at my zoo, uh, you were not allowed to get injured. Um, you're not literally allowed to get bit. I mean, obviously they would understand if something happened, but if you were bitten by a venomous, um, you had to go under review and you could potentially lose your job because it means you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Also with, almost any other animal. If you're somebody who's a keeper who gets bit a lot, you, you might not be cut out for a zoo position. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, all of that is, is taken under consideration. You know, um, it's, it's ironic that you say that somebody who gets bitten a lot, you know, they look at you that, um, I guess I've kind of, um, without even trying, uh, developed a slight reputation as the guy who gets uh, bit every once in a while by some of our lizards and things, um, just doing the basic was, stuff. And it's, it's yeah, not because it I make mistakes necessarily, but it's because, like, well, I guess some people consider them mistakes. Maybe that's not the best way to go. But, um, <laughs> like, I got bit by... Um, uh, one actually, I've been bit twice by that guy. Uh, the monkey tail skinks. Um, yeah. And gosh, the worst one was from a baby, like a month old. That thing launched off a wall and and nailed me and just took a hole out of my thumb because I just wanted to go pick it up and move it. You know, um, I I guess I probably should have realized that the baby ones are even you know dodgier. But uh, actually, April and Terrell witnessed that firsthand. They have a great laugh about that. They were. They were there. Visiting. That was not my finest hour. <laughs> it was yeah. so good. April laughs every time at me about that and always has to remark about how the thing seemed to just fly off of the wall after me. Um, like fighting a squirrel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there are certain people where you're like, yeah, you're kind of crazy. We probably don't want to trust you with some of these animals, but I think it was a little different for me because, um, you know, there are very few people who want to work with some of the animals that I do. And right. I don't take any, I don't take any unnecessary risks with any of these animals, but, um, there are certain, certain animals that you can kind of get away with doing some silly things like a gopher snake, you know, you can reach in there. It, it's a gopher snake. It might still bite you, but, um, nobody's going to, like, write you up for that or file a report because it's like, whatever, you, nothing happened. The animal's fine. You didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Maybe you could have used a hook, but it's a gopher snake. So uh, <laughs> it's very circumstantial. So, um, and then everybody also knows that I have a bunch of carpet pythons at my house and that I get nailed by those things on a weekly basis. And so everyone's like, oh, yeah, you got bit again. Or I come into work and I've got claw scratches all over my forearms. I'm like, what would you do now? I'm like, oh, I was just... Uh, giving my monitor a bath, and he just has sharp claws, and they're like, "Oh, okay." So it's, I think it's kind of expected for me now that uh, I work with some of the animals that just by working with that animal is part of the territory. You're going to get some little cuts and bruises here and there. Oh yeah, that was the uh, that was always the memes that went around at the zoo. Was like, you know, your keeper if your hands always look like they went through a paper shredder, or you can talk about poop even if you're, like, in the middle of dinner with your family. So, yeah, it's all that fun stuff is just par for being a zookeeper. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. you're right on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's really cool. I mean, uh, you you only you said you had the one water monitor. You don't have any other Varanid at the zoo, correct? Correct. He's the only one currently. Um, yeah, it, it gets back to like we are limited on space and enclosures and things, so we have to be very selective. We just happen to have like plans for him in the works before we even had an individual selected. So, uh, yeah, he's gosh, I'd say he's like four and a half feet long right now. So. Uh, being that you work in a zoo with all the enrichment things that we talked about and how you kind of see that obviously the animals are a little bit more intelligent, but like, does it just kind of like blow your mind when you see somebody who keeps an animal like a water monitor or a Nile monitor in like a glass tank on AstroTurf with like a rock and that's it? Uh. God, yeah. Uh, you man. just answered my question with your noises. That's totally fine. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, that that's a lesson in patience right there. I got to tell you, yeah. um, everybody goes through their learning curve. Everybody figures it out one way or another, and you hope that nobody suffers in that process of learning. However, sometimes information doesn't get as far as you think it would, despite the Internet and smartphones and Sometimes you just got to walk away and hope that that person and that animal make it through the day. Yeah. It's tough, though. But, I mean, in all fairness, there are there are ways to reach out to people and delicately educate them uh, to improve their situation and the animals. It's just really frustrating at times. <laughs> you de- you're, you're delicately reaching out. I just called them an asshole and move on. But um, there's <laughs> – well, it, it, it's like – and I'm kind of – this is something new to me because I have a pair of Nile monitors right now and I literally just filled their enclosure up with a bunch of brand new mulch to the point where everything that they had ever sent marked was under about two feet of dirt. Mm -hmm. And then I watched them over two weeks systematically excavate all the way down to all the stuff that they had originally recognized, they moved dirt. They were doing nothing but moving dirt for three days straight. And then they yep. took a break. They were building tunnels. They were going through all this stuff. And I, and I watched these animals do this. And it's like to have an intelligent animal like that and not have something for it to do has got to be just or, – or to not keep it even remotely like this it's just got to be batshit crazy to me and just asking for trouble. And you yeah. are in a zoo setting, and you work you with this constantly. Yeah. Yeah, I got to tell you, it, it, I, I've worked with a few green iguanas, and uh, everybody, oh. I feel like everybody, everybody has a, an easy time with green iguanas. Maybe I'm just, like, looking into this wrong, but uh, the first two weeks on the job, uh, at Santa Barbara, we had this big male green iguana named Axel who, up until that point, had not shown any sort of significant level of aggression. And we could target training. Um, he really likes uh, my assistant curator, Mark. Mark would be able to go in there and, like, just pet him. He would close his eyes. He'd bow his head. He could pick shit up. And you could do anything with an animal if you were Mark. And it never crossed anybody's mind that, the new guy who just started might not get that same uh, warm reception. 
And so I'm walking in. There's this big branch into rock work that almost goes right over the top of the door. And this is a big six-foot door, so this is an eight-foot ledge. And I'm walking in, and the first thing I'm doing is putting the target just so his first focus is uh, voluntarily deciding to train rather than um, trying to test me and figure out who this, you know, this rookie is. And I walk in there, and he gives me a couple, like, really aggressive stabs at the target. I'm like, okay, I think he's performing. I don't know. I have only been working with this guy for, like, three minutes. And he proceeds to run down this log that is well overhead height, gets halfway down, does a 90-degree turn, and just leaps off the thing. And (laughs) that was a a five-and-a-half, six-foot animal, and he put me on my butt real fast. Uh, with uh, my elbow full in his mouth, and he gave me one good shake, uh, sliced my elbow open pretty good, and, and I, had to, uh, I had to offer my foot to chew on so I could reach and uh, oh, push the door open and, and launch myself out, like cascading out this door uh, oh, just to get God. out in one piece. And he, as I closed the door, I can see him through the vents in the door, like scrambling after me. And it was it was terrifying, and for like a few minutes I was like, what the hell just happened? And and after, like, looking into it and realizing there was some breeding season aggression and this and that and and realizing that he had kind of demonstrated some aggression to some of the females in the enclosure, uh, you know, in prior situations, I realized that's kind of normal for green iguanas. And I'm seeing all these, like, yeah. 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds, like, look at my green iguana. I'm like, oh, it's the winter. Just wait a few months, buddy. You're going to regret that one. <laughs> and and maybe it's just me. Maybe I suck at taking care of green iguanas, or maybe it was just Axel. Axel, you know, just didn't like us or the facility or who knows what. But, yeah, after working in the zoo, I, you know, now I, I see all these people with uh, big monitors and, I'm not going to rip on monitor people. There are a lot of people who do that stuff really, really well, a lot better than I do. I don't consider myself expert at all by any means. Um, But I can't help but question when I see people like posting something like, hey, what supplies do I need for a croc monitor? I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's just. I have a 45-gallon breeder. My croc monitor can be fine in there, right? Yeah, so I think somebody posted a photo on, on Facebook a few months ago of an American alligator that was like four feet long shoved in a 40-gallon tank. The thing couldn't move. He was already bent around there. He's like, uh, does anybody want to train a tegu for this alligator? He's getting kind of big. And it's like, uh, dude, he got big. <laughs> yeah, happened. That, had, that happened already. I, yeah. I've been at shows where my one friend who does monitor has, like, done everything but, like, get down on his knees and beg – a person on the other side of the table to not go four tables over and buy a baby croc monitor because of what he has described about where he will keep it, how he will Mm -hmm. keep it and all this other stuff. And and you just kind of, and then he comes back 20 minutes later and goes, Hey, I bought it. And you're like, "Eh." like the defeat in the eyes. It's like, no, I mean, have you kind of had that with, animals you've worked for in the zoo uh, uh, worked with in the zoo as far as the private sector like have you seen somebody come walking up and saying hey man i really want a water monitor uh, or uh, a, a monkey tail or whatever and mm-hmm. from what you have known from the species and what it requires have you just been like no don't do it you you can't do this don't do it yeah most often with uh, sulcatas 
Um, so ah, it, it, I didn't even think yeah. about that. But yeah, no, they're they're. I, don't get me wrong. I consider them easy to keep, but I know what they require, and I know how big they get, and I know how good they are at digging, and and I know <laughs> how much they destroy yards. And I can't tell yep. you how many times. Uh, not just at the zoo, but every once in a while I work uh, reptile shows at a local pet store. And people come up either at the zoo and tell me they've got this tortoise or they come up to, to, to buy some supplies at the show and they've got a little baby sulcata in their cup. And I'm like, oh, dear Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. And they're like, can I keep this in a 20-gallon tank? And it's like, yeah, for, let me see. A month, five minutes. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, you know, I give them the harsh truth. I'm like, you know, uh, they're great animals. They're they're really fantastic. But I gotta let you know, if you like your backyard, uh, this is not a good animal for you. He will destroy that. He will eat everything in it, and likely dig under a fence and disappear. And it happens. I, I yeah. mean, we get calls all the time for people saying like, "Uh, I've got this tortoise. It's like an African." Uh, Spike leg or something, and it, uh, it, it's digging up my flower bed, and my mom doesn't like it. Can you take it? And it's like, oh, my gosh, no. no, not again. And, you know, every time I have that moment where I put the phone on mute, and I'm like, why, 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 why don't people learn? And I unmute it, and I politely go, okay, here's what I suggest, um, you know. <laughs> And it's it's not going to end. I mean, you'd think you'd think no. it wouldn't happen anymore with care sheets and the internet and responsible breeders out there that you know give you that information when you get the animal. But it's just you can't win them all, I guess. It's, well, it's also because the sulcatas are what forty five bucks a piece, and baby leopards oh. are like two hundred. So yeah, yeah. there's that there's some valuation. Yeah, and I do love how you brought up sulcatas because I totally forgot. That was the only ever reptile escape I ever had is um, I came into the zoo and my staff was working. And as I'm parking my car, I got out of my car and there goes our spur-thighed tortoise across the parking lot. And I'm like, well, yep. this isn't right. <laughs> what are you doing here? And he had yeah. systematically dug huge tunnel that it's like, I'm like, how the hell did we miss this? And mm-hmm. he dug his way out. He's right under the fence. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, turtles and tortoises are impressive like that. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> you never expect it from them. But no. that's, you're right. It, it, it's it's one of those things that it's, that there are certain animals you never, I mean, uh, obviously you're on the, if you were on the mammal side, it's like, you hear about these people who own tigers and you're like, why? I know what these things are capable of. What are you doing? So obviously there's got to be that kind of thing with the reptiles too. So, Oh, it's, it's everything. I mean, for birds, your, your, your most common one in that situation are macaws and parrots. Macaws. Yeah. Oh, those things terrify the living daylight out of me. Uh, I've been, I, I've been bit by a few of those things, and that was yeah. enough to be like, why do people keep these things? It, the sheer terror, and Eric will tell you, like, he will agree. If you ever mention I will the word Kinkachu, <laughs> all right? If you ever mention the word Kinkachu around me, like, my eyes are fucking out of my freaking head. <laughs> Kinkachu or Kawadi Mundi, all right? I have been on the business end of both those animals, and I never want to see them again. So, 
it's not fun. So I, I was at a yeah. reptile show once, and you, the Kinkajus have this, like, peeping noise when they're upset. So mm-hmm. I'm walking, and I hear that noise, and, it, like, I guess I start having, like, Vietnam flashbacks because some <laughs> jackass has got a some jackass has got a kick at you over there. I'm like, I need to leave. I need to get the hell out of here. We all die. So, yeah, it was, you know, this is, again, it's one of those things of why would you own that animal? So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. You know, people who don't work in the animal sector, their first impression is what they base all of their, like, sentences that come out afterwards on. Like, when they see a fuzzy little little cat, and they're like, oh, I want that. It's adorable. I'm like, you have no idea. No idea. No idea. Like, uh-uh. I, enc- I encourage everybody to look up what a, a black-footed cat is, and to somebody who doesn't know what that is, they just look like your typical house cat that doesn't have a tail. They're like a miniature bobcat, and you're like, that's fantastic. They're cute. They're spotted, and my goodness, I, I know people that are more terrified of a black cat than a lion, and it's just like those things are insane and so it just yeah. doesn't show you the, just the first perception or an image of an animal is never something to base a decision off of I, people are always like oh that's so cute I want one and everyone's like no you don't so well it, it's funny you bring up the, 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 the cats because I think um, Philly had a litter of those I think two summers ago and I was there and of course like I'm looking in there and I, I see them and the guys next to me are like, looks just like a normal house cat. I got six of them at home. I'm like, it's a completely different animal, but all right. Yeah, yeah. That, thing will, that thing will mutilate and kill all your house cats. <laughs> <laughs> that, that being said, I do want a serval, but that's just me and my own Ooh. stupidity. So, Yeah, well, to be honest, um, I, at, I was just at the uh, NorCal Reptile Show, and there's an educational group there that had a, a leash and harness trained, very well-socialized serval there that you could take photos with, and I about yeah. threw my pants. I was so happy. Um, I uh, I got to say, after spending time working in zoos, I, I kind of regret this decision, but I had at one point uh, a Bengal cat as well as a Savannah cat. And oh, Savannas, for those of you guys who are listening who don't know what that is, that's uh, an African serval crossed with a uh, domestic cat. And my goodness, they are gorgeous. And at first glance, you're like, oh, hey, these are great. Yeah, it's just like a really pretty, really expensive house cat. And it's not. It is. That is a wild animal. Oh, yeah. Which way you cut it. The, and uh, I have the scars to prove it, my friend. That I yep. got. Ooh, man. Yeah, nightmares. Wow. Um I love that little guy. He was fantastic, and, and he really showed me what it's it's like to care for a high-maintenance animal. Um, you know, may he rest in peace. He, fell, uh, he died from uh, FIB or FIP or whatever it is at three years old. No. Yeah, he, uh, man, that that thing was as wild as it gets. And that's, that's a hybrid. I mean, that thing is the 50% bloodline domesticated. Um, so you don't want you don't want something like that, especially if you're not prepared for it and you don't know what you're getting into. And it's the same thing with big monitors, you know. Like, yeah, you can tame Nile monitors out uh, to to be pretty mellow, but um, I hate to uh, I hate to put somebody, you know, in the line of fire, um, even in like a somewhat positive light. But uh, Andrew Bryan, uh, I've actually met him before, really nice guy. His Nile monitor 
the work he puts yeah. in with that thing is nuts. Just be, just on sheer like what he can do with that animal and how trusting he is and how well behaved that animal is. But he's That's not awesome. stupid. He he knows yeah. that that thing is still a Nile monitor, and that thing has has kicked him around once or twice for sure. And he doesn't. I guarantee you, he doesn't forget that. And and I have a lot of respect for that guy because, yeah, he can take all sorts of selfies and and play with that animal and has a great relationship. But he, you know, he doesn't kid around. That is still a Nile monitor. And there are tons of people just like him that do excellent work and socialize their animals really well. But I guarantee you, the the guys that do it best, like him and others, are not. They're not fooled by by that animal. No. That is still uh, that is still a wild animal, whichever way you cut it. Captive bred and born, it doesn't matter. That thing is still a Nile monitor. So, um, yeah, I mean, I really, it's funny because I keep you know a bunch of animals, and some people could probably pull the same argument on me, and it's like, well, yeah, okay. So, like, yeah, I have a lot of yeah. I have a lot of respect for people who do it well. Yeah, yeah. Course, do you, you get know. do you get any um do you get any flack at all keeping animals privately by working in the zoo from other people in the zoo field? Yeah, I'm sure some of my my coworkers have some uh less than favorable opinions about um my animals and so I'm very uh, I'm very selective and cautious when I invite people over for even a barbecue at my house because inevitably they're going to be like, so I you have all these animals, can I see them? And, you know, there's this part of me that's like, yes, I want to share everything with you. But then there's this other part of me that's like, who are you? Can I trust you? <laughs> Not because right. I'm worried about them taking an animal, but because, you know, I want to give off the right impression. And um, I've had people come over and go, tub and racks? What are those? They don't have lights. That's paper bedding. You're depriving that animal, aren't you? And I'm like, wait, 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 pump the brakes. Hold on. Let me explain the natural history of what this animal prefers, how the benefits of this style of system work, and why you might be getting the wrong idea. And and I've never had anybody after that still think I'm some animal abuser um, for keeping snakes in, in tubs. But um, I can see how that uh, comes off distasteful to certain people. And so I, I try to just be as completely open and honest about it. Like, would I love to give this animal an eight by nine foot slice of the jungle just for itself? Absolutely. Am I Bill Gates? And do I have a mansion to do that with and give every single frog uh, its entire bedroom? No. Um, you know, and it really comes down to what are, their, what are the basic needs. Are they happy? Are they eating? Are they surviving? Are they thriving? There's a big difference between surviving and thriving. And to me, if an animal behaves normally, uh, is not acting abnormally aggressive, and especially with, like, snakes, like breeding, the fact that we can keep an animal in a really bare minimum enclosure with just, like, paper, water, heat, cool, and, and seclusion, and they breed, to me, that's, that's an animal thriving. Animals don't want to reproduce if they're not happy, healthy, and they don't feel like there's adequate resources that amend them for them to be able, feel comfortable to devote the amount of resources that they they are programmed to be, you know, sparing with to breeding. So, it, you know, people who want to say, oh, keeping ball pythons or, or anything, for that matter, in a tub and rack system, it's like, look, look at that animal, though. That animal is healthy. That animal is disease-free. That animal has fresh water. 
regular access to food gets attention, um, which you know they don't necessarily need, and and they're reproducing in large numbers. They're doing really well, and so there's something to be said for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I get. I'm sure I've got some people that wouldn't tell me to my face that um, what I'm doing is cruel, but uh, I always try to go the extra mile to spend extra time with some of those people. Like, hey, look, come come experience this. Really get a better idea of, of what you know what it is that is going on here. And I try to exercise that same open mindedness when I'm looking at other people's collections or different species and things. I don't know what that's about. I don't know anything about keeping a blue tongue skink in a tub, and I was shocked when you could do that. I was like, no way, that's fantastic. I didn't know that, but if I hadn't had that open mind, I'd have been like, you're evil, you're depriving an animal of UV and this and that, and like, there's so much more that we've got to learn about all these species that like, you really, you really can't be closed-minded, and and why be closed-minded? Why not ask questions? Why not learn? Why not, you know, get excited about something that you never thought was even there, and I mean, I, I I blew my mom's mind the first time she saw my animals. Her and my brother were like, "Whoa, thirty animals looks different in person than <laughs> the number on on a text message." But then, you know, I put a, a little snake in their hands and I show them the green tree python in the enclosure that is in a forest, and they're like, "Wow, this is fantastic! These animals are great. You're amazing!" And it's like, I, I'm just just doing what these animals need as best as I can and with the resources that I have. And, um, but yeah, inevitably I'm going to get somebody who's going to point a finger and try and call Peter on me, I'm sure. Right. Do you guys deal a lot with that in the zoo? Uh, with PETA and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, we're we're on high alert, and and actually, I think LA Zoo gets a lot more of it because of the population down there. We're a little bit of a smaller town up here, so we don't get too much of it. But um, yeah, it, it definitely happens, um, especially with uh, some of the higher profile animals like elephants. And people are like, that's not enough room for two forty-five year old fully grown female Asian elephants. And and if it happens to be me talking to them at that point, it's like, well, you know what? You're right. We would love to give them several dozen acres of forest. But let me tell you about these individuals specifically. And once I kind of give them a little bit more insight into the amount of work that four keepers put into these two animals to enrich and train and maintain and care for and provide everything that's tailored to their sensitivities, you can't walk away from that thinking they're being slighted. I mean – these girls have their quirks. They don't like being with other elephants. They prefer to be by their themselves, just them too, um, not in a big massive right. social herd like the majority of other elephants. And, you know, there's a lot of legislation going into place that's changing things for certain species, elephants in particular. Now there's a lot of emotional considerations for that, and it's great. But you also have to look at the individual circumstances for that individual animal in that individual facility. Um, you can't just look at an animal and say one way or the other that that animal is happy or not or healthy or not or exercising or whatever. I mean, you really don't know, and you've got to ask those questions. Oftentimes people come to the zoo with a preset notion in their mind, and you can change that if you talk to them and you listen to them and you appeal to their their nature and you really take it from their perspective and try and – 
and, and learn the way they're looking at things. And if you take that extra 10 minutes to just answer some questions and maybe be a little sensitive to these people's misunderstandings, you can really do a lot of, a lot of good for at least that one person. And every one person counts whether they're going to make a difference or not. Um, right. And, and it happens. But uh, I think – I think when people start getting into the finger pointing about some of that and you're not doing this and you could be doing this, the one thing that immediately gets forgotten on, on all sides is that the people that are taking care of these animals, they love these animals. They're not doing it for the paycheck. None of us are getting rich doing what we're doing. Most of us work <laughs> second and third jobs. Most of us have to have roommates and rent rooms and like deal with tiny expensive living conditions because we're devoted to properly caring for these animals and spreading like the proper information and being spokespeople for these animals and like really trying to make a positive impact. And and I think that gets overlooked and lost uh, 99% of the time. You know, it's very easy for people to point a finger and say, so-and-so is abusing this animal and they're depriving them. It's like, they're doing the best with what they've got and they're probably trying to change things. And it's just not like being plastered all over Facebook, you know, like they like, they really want these animals to do better. If, you know, what I prefer to see, uh, and I keep going back to them, but Chinese alligators back in their native habitat. So they don't need to be bred in captivity. So the point that, to the point where we only have a couple animals just so people can see them without having to go to China. Absolutely. 100%. I would love that. Is that the reality? Unfortunately not. Yeah. So that's, you know, people need to, like, pump the brakes and stop yelling at everybody and, like, everybody's a keyboard warrior, everybody's an expert until they're not sort of thing. So I think we need to be a little bit better about being sensitive and asking questions and trying to figure out exactly what's going on and not assuming. You know what they say? When you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. So yeah. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. I, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, Bill – Bill always talks about this is uh that um tolerance is what's really needed in the world today, mm-hmm. you know. Just a little mm-hmm. bit of tolerance about before you go judging somebody else and you may not agree with what they're doing or whatever, but uh you know, just trying to see it from their perspective, I guess. Yeah, take take a take a walk in somebody else's shoes. Like um just really try and think about things from a different perspective. You'd be surprised on what you might see or what you might hear or learn. Um, every once in a while, if, I, if I'm if i just doing some routine maintenance at exhibit and I hear somebody say, God, that's terrible and this and that, I can't believe they're doing that. If I've got the time, I'm going to go, hey, excuse me, sir, um, I actually have a few minutes in my schedule. Would you like to come see something? Like, I'll take them in a behind-the-scenes area. I'll take them somewhere where you don't get to go just because I know that I can change this person's mis- miseducated perception of something by really enlightening what they think is going on and being like, so you might not see this, but it's, it's this, this, and this. And the biggest thing with zoos that um, I would encourage people to, to always keep in mind is it's the little things that you don't see that are going on that make all the difference. And yeah, yeah there's a lot going on that people don't see because it's, it's tough to really explain that in a sensitive way without people running off going, he said this, and it's a complete misinterpretation of, of what was said, and it's fun because, you know, it's really easy to take something out of contact. So. Right. Cool. 
So, I don't know. Is there anything that we missed? That, you know, we're we're going to be running short on time soon, but I'm just curious if somebody was interested in, say, going into the zoo field, what would be your recommendations to them? Yeah. Um, yeah. The best thing I could say is if you live in an area where you have a zoo nearby, uh, go there, ask questions, see what sort of volunteer programs they have. It's really hard to get into the zoo field. There's not like college courses. You can't just go get a degree that's like, Oh, now you're a zookeeper. Um, there are a few <laughs> training training schools. There's more park college out here um, that is basically a, a, a mini zoo for uh, training students in like a two-year program on how to train and work with animals. There's a Santa Fe teaching college out in Florida, which is fantastic. I got to see that last month and they do some amazing work, but not everybody has a resource like that. So if, you, if there is a zoo nearby, we'll see what sort of volunteer programs they offer. You never know what they're going to have. We have keeper aid programs. LA Zoo has stuff. San Diego Zoo has stuff. I'm sure the majority of zoos have some sort of program. And what it does is it gets you a little bit of a different perspective on things. You can really get to know the staff, the facility, and really see what it's all about. And then you can find out what, what avenues are available for you to, to go in and maybe volunteer some of your time and, and get your foot in the door just helping out. And uh, it's, you know, people think they're like, oh, I'll just volunteer and they'll give me a job. Well, it's like, well, there's a little bit of timing and the right place, right time, and some luck that is involved, too. And you also got to bust your butt and prove it to them that this is something you want. And we get volunteers all the time that come in and they're like, I, I love animals. I want to work with animals. It's like, fantastic. That's great. But you've also got to be able to rake a yard and get peed on and pooped on and do it with a smile and engage with the public and, you know, really take that job and it's, you can't just treat it like a job and that once you clock out, you're done. I mean, nobody is like that. That is a serious um, zookeeper. Nobody, nobody's like, oh, it's just a day job. I'm here for the money. Um, <laughs> you really, it's, it's impossible to, to survive in a zoo and not be fully devoted. So you've really got to want it. You've really got to put the time and, and effort in and it's, you got to be prepared that you're not going to make a lot of money. You're going to smell like crap when you go home after after work. You're yep. not going to have normal weekends. You're not going to be able to take holidays off. You're you're not going to go uh, buy a house uh, as soon as you graduate from college or whatever. I mean, it's not glamorous. You've really got to want it. But uh, volunteering is definitely the best avenue to get in. That's how I got my start. That's how a lot of people got their start. And so if you can get into some sort of a volunteer situation and just set yourself up to be in the right place at the right time, the stars might align and you might get in there and you might, you might be really glad you spent four years working for free, scraping crap off of a concrete or whatever, um, <laughs> getting peed on by macaws or chased around <laughs> by armadillos, <laughs> whatever it is, it, it will pay off. And there has not been a single day that I've woken up in the morning and then, like, man, I gotta go to work today. This sucks. I don't want to go to work every single day. Uh, whether I'm getting up at five in the morning, four in the morning, whatever it is, I'm I'm happy. I am thankful. I am very grateful to be able to do this stuff. Not because right. it's fun for me, but I get to share that with everybody else. My entire family, like, it has learned so much just by virtue of me working there. And I know all the people that I talk to. It's the same thing. Everybody right. benefits from that. And, yeah, just you got to put in the hard work, get your foot in the door, get to know some people, put yourself out there, 
I guess the same could be said for any sort of career. You got to put yourself out there, and, and you got to sure. really push and work for it. Um, but it doesn't always work out, and you can't get down about it. Like I've had volunteers that would make absolutely fantastic keepers, and they're doing it for two years, and then they finish school, and they can't get a job, and they've got to go home, and that's the end of it. And it sucks, but that's how it goes sometimes. But you can't right. give up on that. You've got to find another way in another location to keep pursuing it if that's what you're interested in. And it, it will yeah. work out. It always does if it's what you really want. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can you volunteer without the idea of maybe making it a career? I mean, is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. We have a lot of um, – yeah, it's it's not like uh, we only accept people who want to work in animal care. We have we have folks that uh, are retired, and they just want to volunteer their time, whether it be in a docent program or actually doing keeper aid stuff. Um, we've got people that work full-time jobs with bankers and accountants, and they don't need, uh, you know, another career. They're not looking for another career, and they certainly are limited on, on free time, but – they enjoy doing it. So we've got people that do it just for fun. We've got do, people who do it because it makes them feel good. And we've got people who do it because they've got tons of time. So why not, you know, and every single buddy or every single person who does it, um, that does it like for any reason and stays more than like a month, they enjoy it. And it's right. pretty, pretty evident. And it's, it's fantastic to share that with other people. Awesome. That's awesome. Cool. So our closing questions usually entail asking, you know, what species would you want to work with, et cetera, et cetera. So a little bit of a twist on that. If you could have, you know, a species to work with at the zoo, you know, what would it be and why? Ooh, you know, there's, there's, well, Okay, I guess I'll go with the more far-fetched one on this one because one answer is Komodos, but I think that's actually a little more realistic. <laughs> um, uh, and I won't go off-handed too much on that because that might end up happening in, uh, you know, less than a decade. But uh, saltwater crocs. Oh, Ooh. God. <laughs> and, and what really led me to that one was I was out in Florida for a conference, and they have a uh, the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, and they have this absolute – beautiful, like, I think he's 16 feet, and his name is Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God. If you yeah, don't Eric was sending me pictures of him. Yeah, yeah, if you don't think that animal is beautiful, you need your head checked. That that animal's head is bigger than my torso. That animal could take me down like a shot. That animal eats chickens like I eat chicken nuggets. And he's got... <laughs> Let's go play with him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. And, and, and their staff are some, some hardcore people and they've got these, um, these keepers that work there. And I hate to, to put a, any sort of emphasis on gender, but those are some badass women that work with that dude. I mean, th- those, those ladies deserve all the respect in the world because they do it without flinching. And I guarantee you the first time I'd have to do anything with her, I'd be like peeing my pants, sweating bullets. and like, ah, he's coming after me. And they're just like, Calm, cool as a button. They just don't care. They're like, but they're doing it well. They're not being like lax or anything. They're impressive. And so saltwater crocs, just for the sheer size, the amount of intelligence that comes with working with an animal like that. Um, it's kind of like working with a big venomous animal, except 
they'll kill you a lot faster. And yeah. um, they're just impressive on every single level. And I think that very few people get the opportunity to work with such an impressive animal like that. And so I think that would probably be up there on one of my top five, if not the top uh, species I'd love to work with one day. Wow. You know, that's awesome. It wasn't until I saw a saltwater croc in in person that I had a whole new respect for Steve Irwin. You know, it was like, <laughs> holy shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what he was it's, jumping on? Yeah. No. Oh, my goodness. It's nuts. I mean, and you can't, as much as, like, there's an emphasis on working safely with the animals and, like, not sharing a space with them unless you're absolutely happy, you can't work with anim- that animal without somehow sharing that space with them. And so just the basic care that comes with taking care of an animal like that is nuts. I mean, that's just, that's a whole other ball game. I thought I was, you know, the bee's knees getting to work with a six-and-a-half-foot American alligator, and then I went out there I was like, gosh, my my American alligator that I take care of looks like a puppy dog compared to this. I'm, I, I can't even say anything on that. And it's just, those those animals deserve a ton of respect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's so, awesome. Cool. Owen, oh, you got anything else you want to hit on? or? Um, I guess uh, I'll ask the, uh, what animal would you want in your private collection then? Ooh, um, private collection. You know, as much as uh, I don't think working with hots would be the smartest thing for my house, I I, I have to think for rattlesnakes. I find them absolutely gorgeous animals. Um, You know, they deserve respect on a whole other level. And I really like Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes. That's a terrible idea, and I'm probably going to regret saying that because somebody's going to be like, "Hey, you said I, you should keep one, and that you really like one. Well, guess what? I went out and got one. It's like, no, oh, no. yeah, okay. But um, my six of them, yeah, yeah. So if we're going to get away from that, um, I don't know. I, I really think, uh, well, I guess Chinese alligators is equally as. Uh, <laughs> silly of a suggestion. <laughs> I love those things. I have a weird fascination with them. But um gosh, cobras. Again, gosh, I keep coming back to those really like dangerous, potentially large venomous and gators, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and and I don't have the room in in my place, but I really love like olive pythons. Like I know you guys some of you guys have them and Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like that that to me is uh a bit of a holy grail animal for me, I guess. Um, I And monitors, too. Monitors. The water monitor I work with, I'm, I'm very blessed that he doesn't kick my butt every day. And I really, uh, I learn a lot when I work with him. The the intelligence on that is very fascinating. So if, if I had the space and resources to do that, I think I'd love a water monitor, too. Awesome. So far, so good. It's a lot of bunch <laughs> of animals. So... Not too Very crazy, cool. I guess. Some some people keep those. No, no, you're not too far off. You're not nothing's too kooky, but it's definitely very cool. And you know, we're gonna have to. We'll send Eric out. He's gonna have to go to the zoo or something like that. Um, but if yeah. I go to Santa Barbara and I don't see my sister, she's gonna kill me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If you guys are out, please look me up. Um, I'd be happy to show you around the zoo. It's 
something that I can easily fit into my day and definitely uh, make time for it. Again, part of what we do. That's awesome. Man, if I went out to the Santa Barbara Zoo before I went to the Bronx Zoo, Chris Salemi would kill me. (laughs) Yeah, but but Chris Chris Salemi is Chris Salemi. It's fine. We can ignore him for a day. But, you know. Awesome. Yeah, he's he's a lot closer to you though, so I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He said yeah, he's, he's not a massive plane ride. He was making mm-hmm. fun of me because we're what? What do you think, Owen? Like uh, a couple hours away from from there? Two, two, two three, hours with that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which isn't isn't crazy bad, but uh, well, you know, I haven't been up there yet, and neither like, have I. You know, Casper's going there, and Nick, Nick Mutton's going there. Uh, you know, I was, I was that... talking to Nick. I was talking to Nick today. Nick's going behind the scenes to feed and pet the rhinos. So, oh wow! You know, now yeah. I've I've done that at the Columbus Zoo and the the Maryland Zoo. So I got black rhinos and white rhinos that I've like fed. They're slobbery animals. They're not. You're like, look at this majestic creature, and then it opens its mouth and drools everywhere. And you're like, oh, yeah. never mind. I, so know, <laughs> you know. I know Chris's angle there. He's trying to get in good so he can get some oh, uh, yeah. some, yeah. some rough scales or some carpetic yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I there. or something. <laughs> yeah, cool. I see his plan there. So, so I guess – you want to throw out the information of like if somebody is in the area uh, for them to uh, where is there a website that they could check out the zoo um, to get some information on it? Yeah, so if you go to I believe it's uh, sbzoo.org, um, that's our our general website, and they've actually since rebuilt it and redone it. So I'm still kind of unfamiliar with it, but you can definitely get all the contact information for our volunteer program there. Um, there's all sorts of uh, videos and things about some of the events that we have going on. We do a zoo brew. We do a roar for a wine event. We have um, open registration at certain times of the year where we uh, take signups for volunteer stuff. Um, zoo camp. We, we have a lot going on. So sbzoo.org. Uh, is going to be your first go-to point to see all the opportunities for visiting, uh, weddings, birthdays, camps, or even uh, what potential employment opportunities or volunteer opportunities are there. You scroll down and there's an employment and volunteer tab there. Um, so that would that would definitely be the best resource. And then um, they'll usually point you in the direction or give you the right office or person to call. And you can you can get patched in directly to the uh, the keeper office phone number. Um, as much as my coworkers are like, dang it, now we have to answer the phone more. Thanks. Um, yeah, you can certainly call us, and you can get right into the office, and you can, if I'm sitting there and it's going off, you can get me on the phone right there just getting that extension. So send an email, call. Um, it's really easy. We're always happy to talk to people. We've got a really friendly staff that would be happy to give you whatever information uh, if you're having trouble navigating the website. Cool. Very awesome. cool. Yeah. All right. Um, are you going to be at the uh, Southwest Carpet Fest this weekend? Yeah, I am. I initially didn't think I was going to pull it off with wedding and bachelor party and a few other things going on, but I'm actually going up after work on Friday, or excuse me, Thursday. Uh, I'm going to stay at Travis's house, and we're going to do a school presentation Friday morning, but 
yeah, I managed to pull it off. So Friday we're doing uh, a day barbecue and we've got an auction going. If you go to the uh, the Southwest Carpet Fest Facebook page, we've had the auction up for about a week and a half now, and, and everything's going to run until a certain time on Friday. I'm actually talking to April about it. Um, we'll probably have it uh, announced that it'll sort of come to an end on like 4 o'clock or something like that. Don't hold me to that. Um, and then that way people who aren't attending on the East Coast, wherever, can still get some bids in the last minute and try and win some of this cool stuff, whether it be animals, art, uh, vouchers, things like that. There's a lot of cool stuff in that. So um, definitely check that out if anybody's interested. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be there. It's probably gonna be seven or eight of us. Uh, Terrell and April from Designer Exotics are coming. Uh, Andy Rea from uh, I guess I would pronounce it Area Herps or Area Herps um, Reptiles. He'll be there. He's a great guy. Um, right. Polly Cash is coming. Um, Travis, of course, you know it's his place. Living Legless Reptiles. Uh, he's got some great stuff. I'm actually excited to see his uh, Australian water dragons, but um, he'll be there. Um, there's a few people who aren't able to make it. Uh, Stephen Katz uh, isn't able to make it, unfortunately, but he's another great guy who's uh, donated some stuff. So I think it'll be a small group, but it, it's it's only the second year it's been around, and you know just by looking at uh, the amount of stuff that's been donated for the auction and the potential for what we're going to send off to U.S. Arc. It's it's pretty great for a second year, and I think uh, it's only going to get better. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, big big shout out to to Travis for hosting it this year. Last year we did it at a prehistoric pet, and I think it's just going to keep getting better every year. And you know, maybe one day we'll catch up to the caliber of you East Coasters and your uh, your carpet love. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the I would, 45 I, people that are going to be in my house. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what we want. I would have yep. loved to come out, but you know, you guys picked a day before ours, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and, and, if, and if Eric, and if Eric is not at Northeast Carpet Fest, I will kill him. So, <laughs> so you, you guys uh, have to wait till next answer. year. Yeah. So NPR yeah. will become the uh, the Owen and uh, Riley show. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, I'm just waiting until the week that, you know, I call in and Rob Stone's already here and I'm told I'm not needed. So, <laughs> <laughs> Nah. Nobody has your wit, Owen. Nobody has your wit. That is know? true. It, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, maybe one of these years we'll get you guys out here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, do some convincing to have Nick fly down from, like, because he, he's flying all the way across the country to come to our carpet fest, when if he just flew further down from, like, Washington to where you guys are, he could attend yours. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, we'll get there. We're small. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. We're building it up. So, who hey. knows? You know, you I love that. You get eight people this year, get nine next year, and then you're you're exponentially getting bigger. So, yeah. I love yeah, the uh yeah. I love the fact that the that these carpet fests are popping up all around the US and the fact that we're all sort of trying to do the same thing and do these auctions and raise money and you know I, although it's not a ton of money I guess when you look at some of like the other auctions out there 
that raise money for Carpet Fest. But still, I mean, we're doing something, it's a you know. Yeah. Everything counts. And, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. I would you don't see really that. any other Python community, no, so to speak, don't. doing that kind of thing. Not at all. No, we or, we do or any other reptile community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I've said it before. We have five carpet fests now in the United States. What the hell, Europe, Australia? Yeah. One. <laughs> no, they did have Please. one, but um. They uh, what didn't do you call make it, it official. One. It wasn't official. Who did? No, you got to make it official. Call it a car. No, they all got together, but then they didn't call it a carpet fest. Just throw in a bone here. If you're all wearing <laughs> a damn carpet fest t-shirt that I've sent you people, just call it a damn carpet fest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all I want. Uh, Not asking too much here. Right. But. Cool. All right, man, anything else you want to throw out there before we uh, jump off? Oh, uh, I, I guess I'd, uh, I'd like to say big thank you, honestly, to you guys and everybody else who just really uh, keep promoting, you know, everything that's good in, in reptiles in general. I mean, we we have a really unique community, and I can't I can't be more pleased about what we're a part of. This is exciting stuff. You know, it's only going to get better. So um, you guys included everybody else who's out there that, that does anything for educating people and bringing snakes to classrooms and doing that stuff. Like, yeah, you might not be getting paid much if anything, but keep it up. It's, it's a difference that you're making and it's definitely uh, being felt everywhere. And uh, you know, with everything else that's crazy and going on in the world, you know, more people need to tune into this stuff. And I think, uh, I think everybody's in reptiles in in particular is a very special breed of person. And it's, it's fantastic to be a part of a community like this. And I, I couldn't be more, uh, more honored to be on a show like this and involved with everything that's going on. And, and yeah, you guys (laughs) keep my, what little faith I have left in humanity as well as, you folk and everybody else who works with animals, especially with everything that's going on these days. So um, keep it up. Everybody rock. That's right. <laughs> I like it. Excellent. The passion is flowing. And, uh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. God. All right. Uh, on that note, <laughs> with his passion coming out. so I'm oozing yeah. passion, guys. Anyways. Yeah. That's always right, a good thing. Well, Thanks for coming yeah. on, dude. Yep. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Again, really honored, and it's a privilege to be on here. You guys do excellent stuff uh, in your own projects in the show, and it's fantastic. Good stuff. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs> you too, guys. You too. Have, you. have a good night, all right? <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. You got it. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, that was that was cool to learn about the the behind the scenes, so to speak, of the uh, you know zoo world. The flashbacks, yeah. Bring back (laughs) memories, yeah. I was just gonna ask that. Oh, horrible, horrible memories of you know, kinkajous and mucking out. (laughs) Stop it. 
topic. <laughs> no one's allowed to talk about those things. Uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, it was it's it, it, it's really cool, and it also is very cool to have that because the private reptile community as well as the zoo reptile community, they always seem to be like different patterns cut from the same cloth, and and very rarely do they ever see eye to eye on certain things of like how to keep animals. And I know uh, the private sector likes to knock the zoos and be like, hey, we have more success with the private sector than zoos do. I'm like, yeah, but we also don't have to deal with a committee when we try to breed our animals. We just kind of try. And if it doesn't work, we go and do something else. It's so it, there's a lot of other crap that goes with it. So it is very cool to kind of get that aspect of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So the next time we talk, uh, we'll be, uh, on the show at least we'll be uh after the carpet <laughs> test and uh <laughs> right uh that's next week's episode um we're just gonna just gonna do a catch up of uh how things went and uh what's going on um the week after that yeah pre- pretty excited about uh our good friend uh Wayne Larks uh coming on um nice all the way from Australia talk about carpet morphs uh, we're going to be talking about sun glows and moon glows and snows and all those crazy things that he's got going on. Um, if you haven't checked out his collection, uh, Morelia Magic. I Do so immediately. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's got some pretty cool stuff, man. Uh, he was a couple times, yeah. uh, a couple, couple episodes of, uh, uh, the K brothers had, uh, you know, highlighted his collection. Um, so check that out, but, uh, looking forward to talking to him again, uh, and what he has going on. I mean, <clears throat> it seems like the, the Australian fellas are, uh, beating our ass pretty quick, man. And they're, uh, going to be jumping ahead, uh, in some of the, uh, the, you know, the morph, uh, carpet morph project projects. stuff. Yeah. Which we knew uh, would eventually it happen. You live in its... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it also helps if you live if you live in the animal's natural habitat. Sure. I mean, they'll yeah. never have us on corn snakes. With... <laughs> yeah. Ha! Ha! I have a blood python that I never see. Take that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, some cool stuff coming up. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, probably some more, a uh, couple more, et cetera, shows and such. But uh, we got to get a Chondro show in there, man. We need some Chondro talk. Uh, if only we knew some Chondro breeders. I mean, God, if only. Maybe we could talk Matt into coming on to do a Chondro show. We've had him on for blood. So let's make him talk about his Chondros. Yeah, that's a good point, you know. Ha, I just came up with a great idea on air. So <laughs> <laughs> now we're locked in. <laughs> yeah. Cool. He's gonna right. listen to that and be like, "What now?" So uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna say, "Well, I put the snake male with the snake female in the box, and they breed. The <laughs> and they breed." <laughs> I'm more looking forward well, to his show for the night. <laughs> <laughs> his experiences once they. Uh, once those babies, babies hatch out, yeah. and he has to get them going, you know. 
But uh, I have faith in him, man. It's got to be close, right? Yeah. That's got to be soon, right? I think so. Jeez. That's got to be crazy. Yeah, for sure. But cool stuff. Um, All right, let's get this wrapped up and get the heck out of here because we got a lot to do in the next few days. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, All right, so... MoreliaPythonRadio.com You can check it out uh, See what we got going on Um, If you want to get in touch with us About a topic Or uh, you got a question Or a comment um, You can send it to Info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com Check out our Facebook page You can follow us on Twitter Um, Also We have uh, uh, What do you call it Uh uh, Morelia Pick of the Week, which is kind of our little uh, Facebook group page. If you're interested in, uh, you know, Morelia, and sometimes every once in a while, people throw some other stuff up there, like blackheads, walmas, olives, waters. <laughs> you know, so it's not just necessarily Morelia, but uh, all, all uh, what would you say, Australian, Indonesian as pythons, I guess is the uh, theme um, yeah i mean yeah just can't sell anything on there that's all or we no. will kill you no no for sale ads <laughs> yeah. or or remember no for sale ads and no feeding pictures yeah. or videos yes or bites yeah they've been doing pretty good with that so. i will delete them uh somebody threw up a video of one of their snakes eating a rat so but wow. yeah Good. Right. Glad you're paying attention, yeah. Owen. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you aren't. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. I got some kind of email today from Blog Talk about the RSS feed. I got to read more about that. I know uh-huh. some people having some, some issues and problems with uh, uh, downloading it on uh, anything of, like these odd podcast apps, you know. Like, uh, yeah, I don't even know which ones they were, but, uh, hopefully, uh, and I, you know, (laughs) yeah. And not, yeah, not iTunes or something like that. But, um, another thing is, is that, um, I know some people had contacted me about the, uh, thing not working on blog talk itself, like the link and you click on it. Now I know when I first was trying to listen to, uh, the GTP keeper episode with you, uh, same kind of problem happened. So, um, but eventually it worked. Weird. So I don't know if it was just a, like a buffering thing or whatever. But uh, you know, I don't know. I think that just might be uh, how Blog Talk is, and eventually it'll kick on. So that's uh, awfully stupid. Yeah. But all right. Uh, as far as myself, EB Morelia, check out my website. Um, my citrus tiger head albinos had their first shed. They're starting to shed out. Half the clutch is shed. Uh, so I'll go get some more pictures of them up and going probably sometime next week. Um, and they're looking good, man. So I know a lot of people were interested in them. Uh, and I'm not going to be holding them back. Everybody can go away. <laughs> yeah, holding no, them no. back. So. They can all look after I've picked. Yeah. yeah. Forget it, you people. <laughs> so yeah that's all I got as far as myself 
Uh, hope to see a lot of people at Carpet Fest this weekend. Uh, if you're on the fence, definitely should make it out. Uh, it's going to be a good time with a lot of cool people there. And, uh, you know, just awesome, awesome time. So go ahead, Owen. Take us out. Cool. All right. Uh, what I will say is you can go to rogue-reptiles.com, check out all the stuff we have going on there. You can also give Rogue a like on Facebook.com to find out all the latest stuff we're doing over at Rogue. Right now, we have the Super Caramel Jag Clutch uh, that is just hatched out. They are just starting to turn blue a little bit. So we'll be posting up pics as we get along with that. Uh, And we have the June 10th show at Hamburg. And I'm hoping to have some of these little buggers ready to roll by then, but we will see. Uh, like Eric said, this Saturday is Northeast Carpet Fest. It's at my house, 136 Hopewell Street in Birdsboro, Pennsylvania. Um, if you can make it, please come out. We would love to have you here. If you have not contacted me about coming and are worried you will not be welcome, that is completely not true. You don't need an invitation to come to this event. We just ask that you bring something to eat or drink. If you show up at my house without something to eat or drink, I'll tell you where the closest supermarket is. Run out, buy whatever your little heart wants, and come back. <laughs> so we're not going to kick you out, but we ask you to bring something. So uh, if you're on the fence, please, please come. We promise you will have a good time. You will enjoy yourselves, and you'll be able to meet up with a lot of the people you've only ever met online or only ever heard of. Um we're going to have a two-time book author here. I mean, the hell. So, yeah, yeah right? you guys should definitely come out. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. The, and my cousin has my copy of The Complete Carpet Python, and Nick Mutton's coming over my house. And my cousin has my copy of The Complete Carpet Python. <laughs> anyway, so um, what I'll say is that's all I got. And uh, we'll hope to see everybody at Carpet Fest. And um, we will catch you all back here next week for some more Moralia Python Radio. Good night, everybody. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum mad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying and selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. 
ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit ShipReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. 